Hello everyone, I hope you're all doing extremely well. We have the pleasure today of interviewing Lieutenant Colonel Ron Rombo Everson, who is, um, I have, we have to stress, a real test pilot. Now I say real test pilot very loudly because we have what we believe to be a non-real test pilot. If you remember, we had the F-14 Delta uh, guy that said he was a test pilot and you guys didn't believe him and you were probably right. Um, I haven't come down either side of the fence because I don't want to get myself in trouble for political correctness reasons. Um, hello, Rombo. Uh, we will first of all go for over your synopsis. So, completed a distinguished military career spanning almost 26 years and encompassing a wide variety of fighters and UAV slash RPA systems in the private sector. He was the director of flight test for a part 2-3 aircraft manufacturer consulted to the DOD on classified aircraft systems and worked advanced programs for the top three defense contractor as an experimental and operational fighter test pilot with 200 RPA missions in Iraq and Afghanistan. Colonel Everson has more than 4,000 flight hours and experience in almost six zero types of civil and military aircraft for his work in exploiting foreign fighter aircraft he was nominated for the air force's highest award in research and development military aircraft ron has flown include a7 oh nice a37 a slash t38 b17 t6 t28 t33 t34 crazy ov10 tf51 cool f16 oh. f117 mirage 2000 and RMQ-1. He has also been a test director for F-14, F-15, F-16, F-18 and MQ-9 aircraft. Colonel Everson flew with NASA on board the shuttle training aircraft STA evaluating workload during shuttle approaches as well as a modified OV-10 for fly-by-voice test work. His work in energy maneuverability was published throughout the Air Force for years and a portion is taught to every Air Force Academy student and every UPT pilot with a follow-on fighter assignment. Before I unleash um, Lieutenant Colonel Rombo on you, um, that's obviously quite the synopsis. And the first thing you would say if you had just turned up for this interview, which most of you have, would be, this can't be real. You know, this guy can't have flown F-117, F-16, F-15, you know, all this stuff. It's like a kind of dream credentials. Uh, and that's what I thought um, until um, he sent me over his credentials. And so I've got his credentials, his test numbers, everything like that. Um, and if he wants to make them public, uh, then I will happily send them out so you guys can check, check everything out and whatnot. Uh, other than that, uh, any disclaimers or anything else you want to say, um, Lieutenant Colonel Everson, before we crack on? Uh, sure. Thank you very much uh, for having me on. Uh, I'll just say it's Evenson is the uh, what I'm known by Sorry, more no. rather than Evanson. But mm -hmm. uh, a caveat that I always have to say whenever I speak uh, before the public at any non-DOD event is that anything I say should be considered my personal opinion and is in no way sanctioned, endorsed, or approved by the DOD or any other governmental organizations. If anything borders on classified, I will either not comment or I will direct you to the government website for open source information. Roger, and as usual, the, the usual thing I say back is, obviously I have to, I have to uh, get you to choose what you can and cannot say, because obviously I don't know what's classified and not, but that's, that's obvious. Sure. 
Awesome. Um, yes, yeah, so quite the credentials. Interestingly, we didn't get many didn't get many questions on this one. I wasn't really tracking. Uh, so, and this is weird because it's probably the most interesting person we've ever had on in terms of scope of what is covered. I think people may have got a little bit overwhelmed, if you know what I mean. Maybe even not even believing it after what we have next time. But we'll just see how it goes, and we'll extend as necessary. So, just doing checking everything's going. Uh, the where do we start? What made you want to be a pilot, and especially? A test pilot, if you even had any choice now, I suppose you did. Well, I think it's like a lot of other things in life. Uh, you don't choose them, they choose you. Uh, I grew up next to an airport and uh, was watching airplanes all the time. So I had this fixation early uh, in my life of being around an airport, being around airplanes. And I was actually flying airplanes uh, when I was 14 and 15 years old. I could fly by myself before I could drive by myself. Huh. And, at that, and at that time, back in the early 70s, the rules were such that that was allowed. So I would have to go to the airport to fly. I'd have to have my parents in the car, one of them. Uh, as a safety driver, I would drive over to the airport, get out of the car, go pre-flight the plane, take off, go fly by myself for an hour or so, come back, land, put the airplane away, get back in the car, have my safety driver, and drive back home. That's so so cool. it was, uh, <laughs> <laughs> so it's a little bit of a, a different setup. So I've been flying since uh, a very early age. And uh, the test pilot thing, I think it's just that I've always had a natural bend towards the technical side of flying. So I embrace that. And uh, embracing that side of flying uh, leads you towards uh, the test arena. Roger. Okay. Excellent answer. You're a very good speaker. Do you do a lot of public speaking, by the way? Uh, I have. Uh, I've taught uh, at the Air Force Test Pilot School, National Test Pilot School, mm -hmm. uh, various universities, uh, civic organizations, things like this. So, uh, you know, normally I've got a few canned briefs flying the, the F-117 and testing it and life of a fighter pilot, life of a test pilot, things like that. Mm -hmm. And those are kind of uh, fun topics to hear because they're out of the ordinary. Roger. Yeah, absolutely. But you've got so many stories and stuff. Mm. Um, okay, let's belt on. Um, what, we'll, what we usually do is go through the questions, answer them kind of just boringly, monotonously as best we can, and then we'll just open it up to uh, to whoever wants to answer stuff. Uh, okay, ask stuff, sorry. Did you ever consider becoming an astronaut? Uh, your resume is absolutely fascinating. Uh, actually, yes, and that is the only goal I've set for myself that I haven't been able to achieve, which uh, I consider myself pretty lucky. But I have flown uh, with plenty of astronauts and worked with them on projects and, uh, you know, great bunch of guys and gals. But uh, that's the only thing I haven't done is, is fly in space. But uh, having been on board the STA and flying the profile, I had to, due to the, the center of gravity setup on the shuttle itself, it's, it's easy to over-G. So you have to go through specialized training down in Houston. So I was on board the STA when we were doing dives out in uh, uh, Wismer, uh, White Sands Missile Range out in New Mexico. And there's two different types of dives, 19 degree, 21 degree. Speeds are slightly different. Uh, offsets uh, are very similar. Uh, but the left side of that aircraft is all shuttle. The right side is all Gulfstream. Mm -hmm. And then I was in the jump seat, and I got to watch those. And I couldn't fly because I um, hadn't gone through the course in Houston. But what we did we got on the ground and we were able to replicate the flight and they said, okay, we can put you back at, uh, you know, 22,000 feet at the beginning of the, the energy turn here up at the hack, the heading alignment corridor. 
and uh, allow you to fly this down to the landing. And we can compare that to the onboard computation and it will give you a printout and it kind of looks like an EKG. And it'll, the right side will be the absolute uh, perfect profile, then the left side will be your performance. And when you do it right, it looks like a champagne glass. Hmm. So I've got I've got a nice uh, champagne glass uh, sitting somewhere in my files somewhere, wow. and uh, some pictures. I think it was NASA 904 that I flew that day. Oh, but uh, yes, I uh, would love to uh, have been an astronaut, and you know who knows, John Glenn went went up when he was uh, 73. So I guess there's still time for me. <laughs> yeah. Um, one thing I mean, we've got a, a career spanning 26 years. What what I didn't see is actually when that span was from when till when because i i, I miss exactly um when you were active yeah it was uh, 19 uh, september 78 is when i came in enlisted mm -hmm. and then uh, i was with the guard for a number of years uh through june of 89 then went on active duty i was on active duty until uh november of 99 took three years off and then came back in after 9 11. And then uh, um, retired in April 2007. So when you had all the, that time up that comes up, you'd be like 25.5 or 7 or Roger. something like that. Roger, Roger, cool. Okay, uh, okay, let's crack on. Um, is there a company to provide a quote for a life insurance for uh, what you do for a living? It's actually an interesting question, though. Well, uh, none that I would be able to recommend because they all want the, the big dollar signs. And I mm -hmm. paid high premiums, you know, ever since because I've flown at such a, a young age and carried it through. And uh, when you're flying general aviation aircraft, that would be one type of an insurance policy, so to speak. But then once they know you're in fighter aviation, that's mm -hmm. different. And then you go into flight test and then you go into civilian flight test. It, the rates just keep going up and up and... Uh, I mean, I've never even until this question came up. I've never even thought about it before. I, I isn't. I mean, shouldn't all this be covered by the government in your contract? I, I'm amazed that you've got private life insurance to worry about. Uh, when you're doing government flying, yep, it sure is uh, taken care of. But mm. when you're doing civilian flying, mm. uh, i.e., uh, if I'm a, a company pilot, well, like when I was doing the Part Twenty Three certification. Uh, Part of the, the money that I was paid, that just went towards my insurance. I was covered by company insurance with them. But anytime I flew off the clock, I was still a test pilot. Mm -hmm. I was still, you know, the military pilot. And th they just don't change the rates uh, for, you know, a short period of time. There, there are instances in the industry where you will have uh, flight tests or... Uh, training flights or they will call the insurance company and say all right we're taking out this uh, citation 10 we're giving the customer some dual and we're going to take off at 10 o'clock and we're going to land at 11 30 and they will charge them for an hour and a half's worth of insurance and so they have to have the exact off time and on time and they get charged that amount but for me it basically was uh, covered by whoever I was flying for, mm. but if I ever wanted to fly and just take my family for mm -hmm. flights and go fishing and stuff like that, uh, I still had my normal life insurance policy mm -hmm. that I carried that uh, was you know high rates. Roger. Okay, good. Uh, right, let's crack on. 
Was there an incident or part of the fighter test pilot gig that kept you awake at night? So big things that worried you of your career. Uh, I would say uh, you know, the standard fighter pilot answer is yes, no, it depends. 1.22 gigawatts. So that's kind of a yes, no question. It depends. Uh to a certain extent, you're never afraid to fly a mission that you've got coming up the next day. You can be apprehensive, uh, but you do your best to, to mitigate the risk. And uh, test flying is all about risk mitigation and uh, control. Control what you can directly, reduce the risk on those things that you can't, and then believe in your training. And uh, one thing that I taught my sons growing up uh, and uh, young test pilots was get comfortable being uncomfortable so just realize you're going to be put in certain situations and it's not going to feel right it's going to feel a little weird but just remind yourself hey that's okay that's the nature of the business the big thing is defining that line between having that uncomfortable feeling and the hair standing up in the back of your neck mm. Mm. interesting kind of along Along the same kind of lines, did you did you ever base anything on gut feeling? Like this is kind of this isn't right. Something's not right here because we've got this kind of feeling that something's not right. Or is it all just ones and zeros calculations? No, no, no. You have both objective and subjective. And uh, I've got a, a little bit of a story for one of the other questions that is asked farther down the line that I'll I'll go into that on. Roger. Now, on my screen, it may be different to yours. Question four has been blanked out. Do you know if question four has been blanked out on yours? Because I gave you a slightly different copy. Yeah, that's blanked out also. Okay, we'll just ignore them. I don't know why. I've never seen that, but okay. Um, if you could have flown a British jet of the same era, and that's kind of a weird question because you've got such a big era you've covered, but let's just work with it. Of the same era, what would you pick and why? Well, the era I picked was the latest generation. Mm -hmm. So I'd say the F-35, because you guys, you mm -hmm. know, have got a piece of that. So the mm -hmm. F-35 or the, or the Eurofighter. More jump. One of those. And I've flown World War II aircraft also, mm -hmm. and those are fun. So if I had the, the uh, opportunity, I'd fly the Spitfire. <laughs> all, of the, all the Americans always say that. <laughs> the Spitfire, yeah. Okay, very good. Um, of all the aircraft you've flown, which one... Would you be most confident in taking into close air combat? How interesting. I know, caveat, obviously you're not a military pilot, but just pretend you were. Which one would you say, uh, well, what would the answer to the question be? Well, I, maybe I'm confused on that. I'm a military pilot. Oh. So uh, if I took it into air combat, uh, the plane that I would take by far is the F-16. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, I haven't flown the F-22. I worked on it back in the early 90s when we were first developing the, the PVI, Pilot Vehicle Interface, designing the displays, the switchology, the HOTAS, things like that. So if I can't pick the F-22 uh, for the, the jets that I've flown, by far what I would take into combat for, as the question talks about, um, uh, uh, close air combat, it would be the F-16. And can you give us the if reasons I, for that? Because that is just a wonderful jet. You can just do anything you want in that aircraft. And it's just you strap it on and it becomes part of you. And it's a high piece of S aircraft, meaning it's got a lot of energy. Thrust away ratio is greater than one to one. It's got good visibility. Seat reclines, that helps a little bit with the Gs. Uh, the layout, everything works well. The side stick is wonderful uh, versus having the, the center stick. 
So uh, I think the ergonomics of that is laid out very nicely, and I like it a lot. So for specifically air combat, I would take something that was designed specifically for mm. air combat, and that's what the F-16 was. Roger, Roger. Yeah, I mean, for what it's worth, in our in our flight simulator community, our degree, uh, it works pretty much the best overall in, in close combat as well. Um, okay, yeah, sorry, I don't know why I said you weren't a uh, military pilot. I don't know where that came from, but okay, let's carry on. That's okay. Um, uh, right, uh, how well do you think the flight model of the various DCS modules represent the flight characteristics of their real-life counterparts that you've flown? Um, uh, addition, do you actually fly DCS? Because I can't remember what we discussed now. Uh, I have just started downloading the software. Literally mm. just got all the hardware mm. in uh, last week. So I'm downloading the software, getting the, the tweaks and stuff set up for everything, uh, deciding what hardware I'm going to use mm -hmm. with it for headsets mm -hmm. and stick and throttle, all that. Mm -hmm. uh, so I can't talk from hands-on experience, but I will tell you from uh, the fighting that I've watched, I think that they are not draggy enough. Mm. I think cl Clean Dad is used uh, much more because all of the jets I've flown, uh, you go through fuel a lot quicker than mm -hmm. you do in any of the engagements that I've seen on uh, YouTube. Mm -hmm. So we're talking about, uh, are we talking about maneuvering only or just normal flying, level flying, would you say? Uh, I would say the maneuvering flight. Because mm -hmm, mm -hmm. one of the first things I would do when I get my stuff set up is I would try to replicate the Dash 1 to the DCS model. Mm -hmm. And I used to certify sims before. So I certified F-16 SIM uh, at Wright-Pat for the laboratories out there and uh, F-117 SIMs for the operational guys. So uh, you know what the aircraft is supposed to do, and then you go into the simulator and you verify that the performance uh, and flying qualities are the same. Mm -hmm. So I can't talk to how DCS uh, works specifically because I haven't specifically flown it mm -hmm. hands-on. Do you want me to put you in? I mean, obviously, you're just about the most qualified person I can think. Do you want me to put you in contact with Eagle Dynamics? If, if, are you interested in working with them and advising them, or are you just not interested in it now? Uh, no, sure. I'd be happy to talk with them. Oh, cool. Okay. Um, I'll just put a note Maybe, here. maybe we'll come up with a 117 model. Oh, oh there you go. The contact. Uh, right. That'd be interesting because, yeah, they're always. I mean, they've got plenty of people to, to advise on specific airframes, but I don't think they've got any test pilots. I think it'll be interesting. Um, and that's an interesting thing, what you said. No one's ever said that before. Um, that's an interesting uh, angle that you've got there um, about the draggy. Um, so is it only fuel uh, burn rates that you're thinking of? Or I suppose, yeah, until, until I suppose that's all you can judge from, you know, looking at the numbers until you get in the aircraft. It'd be interesting if we keep you around. If we can keep you um, in the Discord when you do get flying, and maybe we interview again, again once you've had a few hundred hours to see, it come back and ask the same question, and see what you think about. Well, how they when fly. I when I take a look at the loadouts that uh, are typically flown in the the DCS roles, uh, they're not draggy enough because they don't have pylons on, mm. and you're always flying with some type of a pylon. Very rarely will you only have like a centerline bag on a. Uh, an F-15 or an F-16, you're going to have uh, other uh, mows and allows, as they mm -hmm. were, uh, what the launchers are called, mm -hmm. hanging out there for various reasons, ECM pods. Uh, in Korea, we had a uh, loadout that we called Kunsan Clean, and that was two AMRAMs, two AIM-9s, 
two uh, 370 gallon drop tanks and a centerline ECM pod. Mm-hmm. And that was considered our clean mode because mm-hmm. we just flew with stuff all the time because the threat was 100 miles north. How, that's interesting because we in DCS, unless we're going to do a sortie to bomb something, we just won't take anything and we won't take any pylons either. It's just a normal way to do it. When you're saying in reality, it's like the only it's only going to be like the uh, sorry, I've forgotten what their name. What the F eighteen called uh, Thunderbirds and stuff like that. The display teams, I suppose, they're the kind of guys that aren't going to have any pylons in reality. That is exactly right. They're the only guys that'll fly completely clean. Now, you, you might be clean if you're doing a, a functional check flight, which is a maintenance test flight. Mm. Uh, but it depends on how, how many things you have to check and how long the flight is. Mm-hmm. But those would have a chance of being clean also. Mm-hmm. But everything else is going to carry something. So like the, the Mirage or, or any of the, because like I say I've flown the Mirage, and uh, when I see that flying by on screen and I go, there's nothing hanging off the belly. That's not right. Mm. Because you've got uh, the R530s and the Magics that have a place to go somewhere, but you've got nothing under there. And you don't have a centerline tank. You don't have any uh, drops on the wings. You know, things are not set up the way you would normally go to war mm. with them. Because mm. when you're looking at performance calculations, general rule of thumb is roughly 15 to 20,000 foot altitude, 50% fuel, uh, 50% weapons, mm-hmm. and all uh, stores, uh, all miles and allows uh, accounted for on the jet, meaning that they're still hanging there. You just shot off half of your mm-hmm. uh, weapons load. And now that drag index is what you use to fight with and what you mm-hmm. use for calculating your, your max range, your get-home range, things like that. Well, that's a re- another really interesting point because I do my own tests. Uh, I started a, a while ago when I didn't really have a clue what I was doing. I started doing my own turn rate tests um, in DCS just to test the, the planes to compare to each other. And um, and we did it and we had some fun doing it. And then we thought, okay, well, let's compare them to the real fighter EM charts because there's a lot of, you know, especially older model EM charts out there just available on Google. Even the F-16, modern F-16 EM charts are out there. But the annoying thing is, with the EM chart, for DCS, I just did all of the planes as default, which means no pylons, no weapons usually. Um, uh, and, but all the real EM charts, as you said, always have two PVM missiles, two ACM missiles, uh, and, and half fuel. Whereas I did basically, I think, no fuel and no weapons at all. And so all my data was completely irrelevant because all the real ones had that full combat load, not full combat load, you know what I mean, the half combat load. Right, and that makes a big difference. And I'll say that makes a big difference in the Mirage 2000 because any uh, Delta wing aircraft like that will bleed energy like a hog. Mm -hmm. Uh, You'll get one or two good turns out of it and then it's kind of pigs in space. It's going to be locked into a, a scissors most likely. Either you're unloading and extending out of the fight or you're stuck in a scissors. Mm-hmm. Uh, cuz it will give you a, a few of those good turns but, th- but that's it and that's because of the the pylons and the extra drag underneath whereas when you're flying it completely clean that's an that's an air show jet mm. um so it leads me on to yet another thing i'd love it when we get you up and going um if you could uh, have if you get a go in the mirage 2000 and because a it flies so differently from everything else in dcs cuz it's our only you know kind of true delta and b to me, it seems completely what we call overmodeled. So it seems like they modeled it too well. It flies too well. However, as everyone knows, I'm not a pilot and I don't really have a clue. I can I just compare planes to each other in DCS. That's the best I can do. And it'd be really interesting if you agree with me that it doesn't bleed energy well enough or if I'm just playing out wrong 
and it's modeled correctly. And I think you would have a really, because you have that ability to, you know, flown it before and you can compare it to those other aircraft. I'd really like to see your thoughts on that again in the future, though. But, hmm. Yeah, I'll, I'll do my best with that, but uh, realize some of the aircraft that I fly, I will fly one or two hops in and yeah. write a report on. Mm. So... You're not going to be uh, diving around in a dogfight, are you? Bloody, um, yeah. Well, I, I, I may have fought them, but if I'm flying the aircraft, then you, every aircraft is defined by three categories, flying qualities, performance, and systems. Every aircraft can be uh, defined by those three arenas. Mm -hmm. So when I do an evaluation, I do an evaluation against those unless there's a specific requirement that, that I have to fly against. Mm -hmm. But... Uh, so some aircraft, when I'm flying them in a test role, they may say, hey, here's the jet. It's yours for this long. Go up and, you know, do these things or whatever capability you have uh, for the time that you've got that jet. Uh, you get to see what's available. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Very good. Okay, let's crack on. Um, where do we get to? Uh, sorry, what did we do? How well do you think? I think that's a 10. 10. The engine failure or something? Roger. Or? Have you ever had any failures in an aircraft which created any dangers to yours or other life? If so, how did it go? That That's a, uh, a almost question. And it, it fits in with a question that comes up later, have I ever ejected? Hmm. Um, I've had, I think, every emergency that you can have in an aircraft. Because when you fly lots of different airplanes and you have a fair amount of hours in them, things are going to come up. So uh, my answer to that question was an engine failure in an A7. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, the very quick story on that was a beautiful uh, spring day flying out of Des Moines, going out to uh, Kansas, drop some bombs and come back. Uh, dropped off the wingman early in flight. He had a uh, malfunction, so he went back to home plate. I continued on, dropped the bombs, came back, and now I'm 100 miles outside of uh, Des Moines. And uh, they've capped me at 11,000 feet for my lowest altitude, which is fine because I've got no speed restriction at 11,000. If I go below 10 and below, it's 250 knots. Mm -hmm. So essentially, I'm going as fast as the jet will go. Why? Because I can. Why? Because it's a beautiful day. Mm -hmm. So uh, I'm going as fast as the jet will go. And then all of a sudden, a big bang, and I get thrown forward into my harness the engine winds down to zero and i start going through the bold face which is a critical act critical action items so you set the throttle get the backup fuel control going pull out the the ram air turbine to get backup hydraulics and electrics seeing if there's any cleanup items talking atc things like this went through everything now i'm closer to the field i'm within about uh, six to eight minutes of the field or six to ten miles of the field uh as I've uh, been able to nurse this along because I'm uh, fast enough that I can uh, keep the glide ratio right. And I said, okay, this is it. Uh, a buddy of mine had punched out the week earlier in the same model jet uh, with an engine problem. We knew there was a problem with a, a certain part that I, that I won't name here. But uh, it was a problem, and they fixed it. And I said, hey, Danny, last week was your turn. You know, it looks like this week's my turn. So nothing's working, and I said, okay, everything's cleaned up, ready to go. Uh, reach down for the handles, and then I go, well, let me just take a quick look outside to see where this jet's going to hit. And I look out, and I go, holy smokes, that's uh, an apartment complex. And I go, that's my apartment complex. <laughs> and I go, and the boys and my wife are home. Uh -uh. 
So I pulled the jet off to the side. At this point, it's very sluggish because the speed had uh, um, bled off a lot. Pull it off to the side to get to an open field, go back to the handles, and just as I touched them, the throttle went from zero to 100. Hmm. Or I should say tackage, zero to 100, zero to 100. So I had enough thrust to get me back to the field and land and, you know, live to fly another day. Mm -hmm. But that was the closest I had to ever hurting somebody on the ground by, you know, throwing a Mm -hmm. 30,000 pound uh, hunk of metal on top of them. Uh, How, any idea what year that was roughly, just purely out of interest? Yeah, I can tell you specifically that should have been uh, uh, spring of 89. Roger. Okay, very good. Right, interesting. Let's carry on. Um, were you ever afraid to fly any specific plane because it had a bad rep or known issues? <laughs> Probably just going to repeat the same uh, answer. But uh, Never afraid because you, you shouldn't ever be afraid to do something. Again, uh, things that we do in flight tests can be high risk. We don't like to use the word dangerous. We'll just say high risk and then we mitigate risk. But there, when I was doing civilian flight tests, we were working on a, a tail end of this aircraft and redesigning the whole thing and tried to get it to meet some certification criteria. And the engineers came to me and said, hey, we've got this new elevator design that we want you to use, and it's got uh, an extended horn. So uh, just for your own edification, you've got the, uh, the tail structure, you've got the uh, vertical uh, stabilizer horizontal stabilizer rudder and elevators well with the horizontal stabilizer and the elevator is you know split like that i looked at it and the horn comes around the end of it some will not have a horn and have simple uh, uh, elevator mechanism and others have horn to give a little bit more uh, angle of attack a little bit more uh, flying surface area so i took a look at this and i said you know the the mass balance properties forward of the hinge line uh, looked to me that they would diverge. I said, I don't like this. Tell me why you think this works. Because as I'm looking at this, we have put the surface volume too high forward of the hinge line, which will make this want to get into a out of phase uh, condition, somewhat akin to a PIO, pilot induced oscillation. And they said, no, we think it's it's enough that it won't do it, and this and that, and this and that. And I finally got to the point where I said, okay, uh, if you all think it's safe enough to fly, I said, uh, I think it's borderline, but I'll go out and I'll give it a try. And uh, the conditions were, were very uh, light when I left and uh, took off and flew the first uh, part of the mission. I went, well, hey, maybe this will work. It, it seems like it's uh, doing okay. But when I came into land, the wind conditions had changed and they were more gusty. And I got into an unlandable configuration because now with gusty winds, when those gusts hit the tail, it did want it to diverge. It wanted it to go past where I held it and wanted it to exasperate the situation. So now I was getting a porpoise. So now what I had to do is figure out, well, where's the, the wind coming from? Which runway is most aligned with the wind? And what flap setting will change the angle of attack on approach? in order to allow me to uh, get this into a landable configuration. So I finally found a combination that gave me the smallest amount of porpoise. And uh, I just came down porpoising the entire way down and uh, was able to land. And then uh, went back to the engineers and said, okay, let's take a look at the design, put it on the table. And I said, 
go get a big red marker and put an X through this. And I said, we don't want to throw this away, but we want to learn from this. So I said, put an X on it and put at the bottom, do not ever use. Because sometimes in, in flight tests, you can do tests and then maybe a year later, you find you're replicating something mm. because it got lost in the weeds or somebody to document something correctly. So that was a case where I wasn't really keen to fly that aircraft. Had my reasons. They turned out to be justified, but we all learned from it. And I didn't plant an airplane and I didn't have to jump out of it. And just out of interest, how did the, the, the follow-up go? Did they change the design again? You took it back up and it was happily ever after or did you not follow that up that that particular well that it's that's a whole nother story um but they took less of a bite they went back to a more conservative side and then how they were trying to make the uh the rules with the faa the faa will put out their rules for uh the way the aircraft has to perform then they will give you their interpretations of those rules which is very nice and if you cannot maintain the exact parameters that they want for their interpretation, then you ask for an ELOS, which is referred to as an equivalent level of safety. And the way the company was looking at the uh, criteria that they were trying to meet, I did not agree with. So I wrote up a, a way of doing this, and I talked to the chief test pilot out of Chicago, which is the Great Lakes region, which is what we were closest to at that time. And uh, I had a good working relationship with him, and I just called him up, said, uh, hey, Joe, sent you this. This is how I intend to meet the criteria of, you know, part 23 dot, bop, 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 bop. And uh, he looked it over, uh, called me back the next day and said, I'll just take draft off the top of this and sign it if that's okay with you. And that's exactly what we did. So we ended up saving about uh, it was nine months and about a quarter million dollars in uh, design costs. Hmm. Awesome. Okay. Um, let's punch on then. I think you've just answered this, but did you have to ever eject? I mean, it's pretty unlikely, but did you have to ever eject from a, an aircraft? No. Uh, like I say, just that, that one time there, uh, there's been no other time that I've been that close to ejecting. Roger. And do you know other test pilots that were testing aircraft and had to eject? Just wondering how common a thing it is, but I would expect very uncommon. Or yeah, know. that is a very uncommon thing. Mm. Yeah, okay. And I guess that's all because things are well planned and like you said, things are mitigated and done sensibly rather than doing, you know, the kind of thing I would do, just fly, you know, take a wing off and try it out <laughs> so, so right. everything is done very sensibly and maturely and professionally unless you're doing classified work where you have a tendency to make leaps and bounds in technology mm -hmm. uh, because you can move a lot faster uh, you're much leaner you got a smaller group you can take things from existing aircraft put them together most of your flying uh, and the test flying is evolutionary rather than revolutionary uh, because it's going to be a natural progression mm. you say hey we've got a, a system that flies well but we want it to carry more fuel okay it's a gross weight increase it's going to take about uh, inputs from five different organizations in order to make a gross weight increase and be able to do the flight test for it and the structures and weight and balance and aerodynamics and the loads folks and 
uh, all those types of things. Uh, but that would be very uh, evolutionary rather than revolutionary. Mm. Whereas in Black World, you, you take things that have never been, and now you're flying something that uh, is straight out of uh, Buck Rogers. Mm. Roger. I mean, if you want to look up a, an interesting aircraft, and I will just tell you the name mm. of it, and it is, it's unclassified, and they released it. But uh, go look up the uh, the Boeing BOP, B-O-P, Bird of Prey, and take a look at that guy. He's an interesting one. And uh, Whoa. I knew the guys that uh, the did, did some of the work on that, and that's a very futuristic. And again, once you start kind of being trained in certain things like uh, low observables, you never look at another aircraft the same. You can look at an aircraft and know where its weaknesses are in the uh, low observable spectrum. I'm assuming that thing never flew. No, it did. Oh, good lord. Wow. So there okay. looks like a uh, stealth fighter that like Iran got a hold of almost just looks incredibly like maybe dangerous. an early version. Do you see the canopy? The canopy is very F-22-ish, isn't it? Hmm. Okay, you know what, we'll probably come back to some crazy projects, but let's, let's crack on for now. Um, I, I don't usually take questions at this point, but because it's interesting. Um, the guys on the stream saying that, would you guys work as a team, a team of testers? Um, not necessarily pilots, but uh, or, or is it more solitary? Are you kind of on your own all the time? How would you answer that? Oh, no, you're definitely a part of a team. Definitely, because you share the wealth. And not everybody can fly all the profiles. Uh, some guys are better at certain things than others. But you're in the middle of a certain test, and you can't be used for, uh, let's say they're doing some uh, dive speed runs, you know, some mock runs. And they say, hey, are you available next week for that? And you go, no, I'm doing gear tests on this, this other airplane. And they've listed that as a higher priority. So if you can get the, the chief uh, technical officer or the squadron commander, whoever, to sign off to say that you know, you've got higher horsepower and that needs to be done before the gear test. Sure, I'll jump in on that and fly those with you. But you you shared the wealth and everything, and that's one of the, the best things about the uh, Society of Experimental Test Pilots, of which I've been a member for 20 years now, is that we get together once a year and we talk about things that we're doing and we say what works, what doesn't work. And we share the wealth because you know none, uh, none of us is as smart as all of us. Mm. And you've got to check the ego at the door. We're here to to do a job, and that's to uh, fulfill the mission and to do it in a safe way. Okay. So yeah, you're always you're always going to work with a group of guys. Mm -hmm. Very good. In fact, I, I will even uh, I will give a shout out to uh, a few guys that uh, can off the top of my head that. Uh, helped me through the years. Um, I'll just say notable test pilots that if you ever get a chance to run into them or Google them or something, some may come up, some won't. But uh, like Paul Brown, I worked with him on a few different programs. He did F-22, F-23. Tommy Morgenfeld is just a a treasure of aviation flight test. Uh, Carol Beeler, no longer around anymore, but uh, I learned some good stuff from him about uh, F-8 and uh uh, doing high-speed test runs and finding out that the tail surface is the least wetted 
So when you're doing a high-speed mock run, you're generally going to diverge in yaw first, and when it happens, don't be surprised. Uh, J.B. Brown, uh, great, great guy, F F-117, F-22. I'm not sure if he had 23 time. Um, I won't say these companies that they're working for because I haven't approved it with the guys, but uh, Evil Bill Gray, good guy. Again, uh, highly, highly knowledgeable in the flight test arena. Uh, he's working for the government. Rick Searfoss, he isn't around anymore, but uh, Rick and I flew together on a few test missions, and uh, a question came up one day with an ancillary group that was talking about some shuttle operations, and I went, oh, that doesn't sound right at all, and I gave Rick a call, and he said, no, that doesn't sound right at all either, and we got into a short discussion about uh, shuttle operations, orbital dynamics, and uh, a lot of very interesting uh, concepts and how the, the shuttle flies. And uh, then we went back and talked to this other person who was putting out the uh, incorrect information, and uh, Rick gently steered him in the right way. Uh, Bob Hoover, uh, got to be around him. Uh, obviously, he's one of the, you know, the older guys gone and stuff like that. But Bob Hoover, a wonderful guy, Scott Crossfield, that really upset me when, uh, when he died uh, on that uh, VFR flight, uh, I think it was in Wisconsin. Victor Belenko is a fun guy. Uh, Victor uh, brought the MiG-25 back in 76, defected with it. And huh. uh, not so much that he's a, a test guy per se, but that uh, once he came back, uh, he got uh, the Western civilization uh, bug, and he acclimated very well. And I ran into him at a... And he was one of the spokesmen for a fighter trainer aircraft that could be used for intercept training for the uh, DOD as a low-cost uh, method. And that guy, I'd say, is a typical fighter pilot, funny as all get out. And uh, if I say typical fighter pilot, I say all the things that go along with that. He was uh, the epitome of it and uh, just shows you that fighter pilots are the same you know, world around. And then uh, I guess we uh, ended up with Chuck uh, Yeager, although we disagreed on a couple things, but uh, he's done some uh, some wonderful things. So just a shout out for a few of those guys, awesome. because those guys, you know, went before me and went before a lot of other people, and uh, they did the real heavy lifting. And because of the stuff that they did, makes it easier for us to do what we do today. And like JB and Evil Bill and uh, Tommy and some of those other guys, if I got stuck on something, I would call them and I would say, hey, I've not seen this before. Now, what do you think? And they go, oh, yeah, yeah, let me tell you about that. And then they would uh, give me uh, their knowledge. And uh, it was just invaluable being able to have that. Roger. So sh shout out to those good guys. Roger, yeah. Even I've heard of some of those guys, and I don't know anything. So <laughs> that's, that's very cool. Okay. Now, well, let's build on then. Um, okay. You know what? God, what did we get to? Ejection, and then we just segue, didn't we? So uh, did you ask something, RC? Yeah, I wanted to see. Did he come in as an experimental pilot? Did he have time just as a, as a, as a line fighter pilot? Did you hear that? Yes. Yeah, that's a great question. I came in as a line fighter pilot and uh, got involved with testing early uh, and then started into the black world. And because I did that, I got sent to 
about a hundred different courses on anything that you could think about when it came to systems, subsystems, aerodynamics, flight test, program management, uh, modeling, simulation, uh, all that type of stuff. So uh, I came from the operational community to operational test to developmental test and kind of went back and forth in that world and I did more developmental test in the civilian side. So my, I know there's a question at the end about which schools I went to. I went to the National Test Pilot School, took a few courses there, taught their uh, operational testing evaluation course or, or part of it, and then sent uh, my guys, uh, uh, the engineers and some of the other pilots that hadn't been through formal flight training. I would send them to NTPS also. Challenge your question, I'll say. Yeah, just to follow up in your time as operational, did you see combat or no? Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, I will say uh, I got shot at a number of times, but I will say it's it's uncontested um, combat time because uh, I was in a ground control station and not in the aircraft because I was flying an RPA at the time. But uh, I've had small arm fire, I've had missiles shot at me, uh, and it feels just the same. But yeah, I've got, uh, it's like two, it was 200 missions in Iraq and Afghanistan, and I knew those countries like the back of my hand. So I flew them six days a week for 10 or 12 hours a day. That's my question. Yeah. Awesome. Okay, well, let's crack on anyway. Let's get the official questions done. Um, what is your, I don't know how you're going to quantify this, but what is your favorite assignment slash favorite aircraft to have tested and why? That's a, that's a real tough question because there's pluses and minuses to all of them. Um, but I'd say by far the most interesting were the classified missions because they were so groundbreaking and... Uh, they were just so radically different than anything else that was out there. I found those were the most satisfying missions. And you kind of, anything you do in life, you kind of, it picks you. And then while you're doing it, you find where you have a natural bend. And for me, my natural bend is Black World and Black World Flight Test. Hmm. Okay. No, my uh, but I guess maybe I could I could flip that question a little bit and uh, rather than tell you my favorite uh, aircraft or assignments or something, I'll say the the toughest the two toughest things I've done, and that is uh, chasing bombs hmm. and chasing terrorists. The chasing bombs portion is uh, we would be dual qualified in uh, various aircraft, and like when I was flying the one seventeen. We'd be flying 117 uh, aircraft, doing tests with those. We'd have a companion aircraft, a T-38, that uh, we would fly alongside the 117, depending on what was going on. And then we would also be loaned out to other test organizations for tests that they needed a test pilot, and we'd go fly their jets. Well, one of the things I had to do a number of times off the 117 was either be the the platform dropping the bomb or the guy chasing the bomb and chasing the bomb is extremely difficult because you're very close to the aircraft just a couple uh, aircraft lengths away and you're waiting for certain things to happen in the flight control system 
then the doors open, then the bomb comes out, and you're waiting for, again, certain things to happen in a certain sequence, in a certain time frame. But when that bomb comes out, that's gravity. And gravity is pulling that thing down to 32 feet per second squared. So you've got to immediately get on that stick, and you are uh, unloading the aircraft. So you're pushing over very quickly. And the steeper it gets, you have to roll into the bomb in order to keep track of it. So I'm in the front seat flying it. I've got a combat photographer in the back who's taking video of this. So I have to be able to keep him in a position where he can see what's going on. So I'll be pushing over we call it a bunt. Uh, I'll do a bunt, and then I'll have to check into the bomb, which means I will roll with left. Let's say if the bomb's on my left, I will roll into the bomb but use top rudder to keep myself from actually turning. So I'm cross-controlling the jet. Now I'm kind of slicing through the air at 90 degrees, following this bomb so that he can keep uh, 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 taking the film in the back seat. Now we have to monitor our altitude and our airspeed so we come out of a dive recovery and not get fragged by the, the round. So we get to a certain point and the unload, roll, pull, and then uh, you get away from the ground about 20 degrees up, unload, roll, and hold it right there. And if you time it right, you get about three potatoes and then the bomb goes off. <laughs> so that is a wild ride mm -hmm. trying to do that because if you miss that first second and a half, you will never catch that bomb again. Mm -hmm. So it takes a lot of finesse to do that. And then chasing terrorists, you're in downtown Baghdad, and you're flying something that's going pretty slow, but it's faster than your average um, uh, Toyota uh, truck over there. But all the, air, all, all the aircraft, all the uh, cars and trucks are built by Toyota over there. It seems like 99.9. .9. They all look the same. They're all white or black. And you're trying to find this guy and follow him in the midst of daytime traffic and you're having to fly in between these buildings and the, the sensor operators throwing the the uh, the camera one side via the other you're offsetting this way then you offset that way okay now you got to do a bow tie here's a circle orbit very very difficult so i'll say those were two of the toughest things i did much what, what type of aircraft are we talking about in the second story uh, that would be the uh, predator a Mm -hmm. So that's the RQ-1. If it doesn't have a mission kit on it, if it can't drop bombs, and the MQ-1, if it has the mission kit where it carries the Hellfires. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Wow. We talk all day, all day about those stories, but that is. And what? And what, what? Chasing the bomb. What, what was this for? I don't quite. Just to check its profile. Well, because you have to make sure the bomb is doing certain things at certain times. Because we dropped laser-guided bombs. We dropped um, bombs uh, with uh, the JDAM kit, and that was one of, one of the things I did last in the program is I was the program manager forecasting all the upgrades to the 117 till its end of life. And the last major project I worked on was the enhanced GBU-27. It's a 2,000-pound bomb with the Paveway 3 guidance up front. And a uh, JDAM tail kit and back. So we had to rewire the bus from the aircraft normal bus system of a 1556 to a 1776. And all that means is, is that when you're in the cockpit and you can tell the bomb, here's your alignment, here's your coordinates. So once you release it, 
it's got its basic coordinates. Now it takes the GPS signal as it's riding down mm. through the uh, the clouds and everything. And it gave you the capability of going after targets that were under and undercast. Whereas normally with a laser-guided bomb, you can't shoot through the, the clouds. You have to be able to mm. see the, the target. Never thought about that. Mm. So, so to do all that, you have to make sure the bomb's doing certain things at certain times. And you can tell when the seeker's active and when other things happen. I, mm. yeah, I can't go into the specifics, but I just say there's a reason to do it, and it's a very wild oh ride. Yeah, no, mm. I, I get it now, because even in our simulator in DCS, and you're following a GBU 10 or something, you know when it's caught the laser, because you can tell it, it, it dives differently, it, it moves differently when it's caught the laser, when it's not, so yeah, I kind of... Yeah, and there's a difference between Paveway 2 and Paveway 3. Paveway 2 is your bang-bang uh, guidance, Paveway 3 is proportional. Mm. So with, with 2s, you're going to get full deflection of the fins, forward fins, with uh, 3 you'll get proportional, so it's a smoother guidance. Mm. Mm. And there's a little bit of difference in what happens at the end game if you're out of energy. With three, mean, a, with three mean more accuracy, or is it not that simple? Uh, it just means uh, it's not going to give up as much energy as quick. Mm, mm. So you can uh, maybe finesse it a little bit more, mm -hmm. and, and you're maybe not going to run short of a uh, target with a paveway three where you could if you had to do a lot of movement with a paveway two. Mm. And again, there's tricks to that where you aim along and then bring it back to the target and you hit versus having it hold short and you try to bring it up to it. It's always mm -hmm. better to be long and bring it back rather than being short and and forcing it to the target. Well, that's interesting because we we did uh, a campaign not too long ago. We were using uh, actually INSGP, uh, INSGPS GB38s, I think it was. And um, it was cool because we could chuck them a long way. We could chuck them, I can't remember now, but like 15 miles or something. But the problem is, because we were chucking them so far away, right to the edge of what they could do, by the time they had got to the target, they were at max fin deflection, and the accuracy was terrible. We couldn't kill anything with them. Um, whereas if you drop them much a shorter distance, like five miles, then they wouldn't have so much fin deflection and they could easily hit a target you know within plus or minus a few feet uh, so we found that interesting uh, bit of yeah so it depends whether you had twos or threes because mm. like I say twos would run out of uh, energy quicker than threes would mm. Mm. okay cool right let's push on uh, we're doing really good um so i don't understand this next question so you're going to have to tell us your interpretation of the question and then how you answer it which is the biggest challenge for the upcoming years in the aircraft industry uh my answer to that would be uh, the software intensive nature of flight test in all areas that and the integration of manned and unmanned aircraft in offensive or kinetic operations so the first half is uh, everything is software these days. We can take a, uh, a dumb box and put a smart plug to it and uh, make it whatever we want. And the, uh, the T6 was the first one that I had any example with when I was out uh, talking with the beach test pilots. And uh, they said, yeah, we've got this new concept that we're uh, employing with this where we call it a uh, dumb box smart plug. I go, how's that? He just says, well, if we lose a airspeed indicator, 
uh, all these uh, other boxes are the same size. But he said, this plug says it's an airspeed indicator plug. So he said, if something goes bad with the, the hardware of this, he said, I take that out. I could take the altimeter or the VVI instrument from the other part of the panel, stick it in that plug, and it now says, oh, I'm an airspeed indicator. So it's Dumbbox smart plug mm. because it's all being run off of software and everything getting more and more screens all the time and you're networking the aircraft together, you're, you're combining the systems together, they're trying to have neural networks where it can do more thinking for you and take care of the uh, degraded modes uh, before you have to even be uh, notified that there's something going on. So software <clears throat> is getting more and more intensive all the time. It's referred to as source line of code. So when you're doing work on a certain area, uh, you'll need to know how much slot do I have available. Because if you want to put something in like anything else, it's a rack and stack for requirements and priorities. So if they have the money and it's a high enough priority or requirement, then it gets implemented. But they may have something that says, okay, we want that and we've got the money for it, but do we have the slot for it? Do we have the source line of code to do that? Or do we have to take some other capability that we don't use much, take that out and replace it with this other one that will give us a lot. So software, software, software. I'm seeing that, you know, all the time. Mm -hmm. uh, and then the other thing is uh, unmanned aircraft or RPA remotely piloted aircraft interfaced with manned aircraft and they've been working this for a while um you can look up uh loyal wingman mm -hmm. on the net and that'll give you an overview of uh flying some of the different aircraft where they're now uh, able to uh, fly to the tanker themselves get on gas and go out and do their thing and you're generally going to use your uav pas for the the big three dull dirty dangerous if it's something that is, you know, a 14, an 18, a 24-hour mission, that's tough on the human body, rotating guys through a GCS all the time. Uh, if it's dirty, it's a dirty bomb. It's a dirty area. You don't want to subject uh, a human body to it. You can throw the U UAV in there. And then uh, if it's very dangerous, it's a whole lot better to uh, put an RPA in there, lose the RPA, and uh, not lose the pilot, but maybe perhaps before that RPA is lost, you get a spike from where that thing was shot, and that gets uh, sent to the satellite, and then Intel gets that. Now we have, oh, there's an SA-6 in this area that we didn't know about, mm -hmm. or an 8, or, you know, man pads, or ZSU-23-4, whatever, radar control site. So... Uh, the RPAs handle the, the 3Ds, but I think the biggest thing we're going to have is integrating them into manned uh, flight. Because if you're talking a package of 60 aircraft going out to do something, where are you going to put them? Are you going to put them in front? Are you going to put them in back? Are you going to put them in the middle? You know, Are you going to attach them to a manned flight? Are they going to be the second part of a two-ship? Will they be the back four of an eight-ship? So those are just some thoughts of mine on you know where the industry is going. Roger, well, yeah, that's interesting. I've never had an answer like that. And it's something we ask everyone that comes here, just purely for interest. So it'd be nice to, to see what the viewers uh, uh, think of that and th their feedback. But okay, excellent. Um, 
Let's push on. Can you summarize the least obvious or most striking differences between flying manned and unmanned aircraft? Uh, I do not have that question, but that's an easy oh. one for me to uh, answer. Mm -hmm. uh, when you're actually flying it, there is no difference. From the standpoint, you are totally immersed in that flying and you feel as though you are flying uh, that RPA. So there would be times I would get out of the GCS at, uh, I'd look at my watch and it'd say uh, six o'clock. And, you know, standard clock or standard watches, you know, two swings for 24 hours. I sometimes would wear a watch with a one swing for 24. And I'd get out as the new crew's go coming in and I'd say, is it six o'clock in the morning or is it six o'clock in the evening? Because you lose track of the days because you're in the other half of the world. In the other half of the world, it's, okay, it's noontime, they're doing their thing, blah, blah, blah. You get out and it's dark and you go, no, it's morning here, or no, it's night here. Um, you lose track of it because you feel as though you're actually flying it. So the, the times that I was shot at, I got mad just as though it was me flying and they were shooting that missile at me. Mm -hmm. They are shooting AAA and stuff like that. Now, it is different because you don't have the peripheral vision the way you do in a manned aircraft. And there's a, uh, a sim at uh, Wright Pat in the labs there, and I've flown a number of times, that I've told uh, a few high-ranking individuals that if you took this domed F-16 and integrated it into an RPA, you'd have guys lining up to fly this. Mm because you essentially walked into this dome and you were at 15,000 feet over Iraq or over wherever you want to be, and you've got the, all the F-16 switchology, everything worked the way you wanted to, and it was just virtual. Mm. So now go do your thing. And along those lines, uh, I think you're going to see virtual cockpits, the virtual mm. reality, become a, a bigger and bigger deal. Um, the chief test pilot of one of the top three uh, uh, defense contractors and I had a, a real good conversation about that. We both agreed, number one, that we need a, a new low-cost uh, type of coin fighter, counterinsurgency, lightweight fighter that um, doesn't cost much, doesn't have a lot on it, but can serve in a area that you can drop some bombs, shoot some guns or rockets, and not have to spend $50 million in 20 years to, to uh, put together. And we also agreed that the time's coming that you're going to get into your jet, put the cockpit down, and put your visor down, and now you can pick what time of day is it because everything you're looking at will be virtual. So you don't have to worry, is it raining out, is it clouds, is it zero-zero fog, what, it doesn't matter. You're in a virtual world. And that stuff is coming more and more. Air Force is looking at saving six months of their 12-month training pipe by using virtual reality. Mm -hmm. And I did a lot of work with that back in 93 to 96, in, again, in the labs. But it takes a long time to get out of the labs into an actual airplane. Interesting that our technology is kind of coming to your world, <laughs> I guess, from the, from the virtual side, moving to, to real. So, the, the, so I guess the answer to the question, in, in some respects, there's no difference. You feel as though you're right there. In other respects, you're looking at a flat screen mm -hmm. or a, a number of flat screens trying to interpret 
what's going on. And you'll be chatting with people. You've got multiple chat screens on multiple classification levels, and you're talking to different customers. So it can be very, very busy in a ground control station. Mm-hmm. Yeah, interesting what you said about how immersive it can be and how you feel like you're essentially really flying it, which you are, but you know what I mean? You feel like you're really there. And obviously we have the same thing in our, in our simulator. Uh, it can get very immersive and you can get very animated <laughs> when you've got missiles flying at you and stuff like that, as you'll soon find out. Um, very good. Uh, that's, uh, where do we get there? If I wanted to, so this is a kind of personal one from someone, if I wanted to become a test pilot and I don't have a STEM major, is there still a way to become one or at least become competitive for a slot? Uh, the way I answer that question, if you want to be successful, you do what the successful people do. And by that, I mean, if you want to become a test pilot, you go to the test pilot school and you go to the commandant's secretary or they'll have some other liaison and you say, what are the competitive stats for the last three to four classes? And they will tell you very succinctly that uh, the last number of classes, uh, the background has been uh, this type of um, bachelor degree this type of master's degree this is the gpa in the bat in the bachelor's this is the gpa average in the masters number of jets flown by the individual total rounds flown combat time instructor time and they'll say these are the averages so if you meet kind of that same average as everybody else chances are you're very competitive to be able to uh, compete for a slot at the test pilot school. Roger, yep, good answer, makes sense. Okay, let's push on guys. Uh, can you explain the process of a test program for, uh, this is one I, I wanted to ask. So if we just take up the average test program, whatever that is, can you explain the process of a test program from an aircraft? What are the goals and how is it decided what to test? Okay. Uh, again, that was one missing, but oh, uh, my bad. Yeah, I don't know where they're yeah. coming from. Well, uh, not a problem. But I'll just say uh, we still look at uh, we evaluate aircraft based on uh, flying qualities, performance, and systems. So you you look at those three things, and the first thing starts off with what is the requirement that the DOD has established? Is this going to be a fighter, a trainer, a bomber, a helo, whatever? What's its mission? Okay, now that we know the mission it's going to have, have they specified a certain combat radius or range of the aircraft? Okay, yes, no. And then as they <clears throat> define each of those requirements, it starts to define what the aircraft looks like. <clears throat> and that's why Kelly Johnson... Uh, from Lockheed when he was still around, uh, how he could design the uh, U-2, the T-33 U-2 mm. and SR-71 in such short times mm. because he did it in about a half hour at the design meeting. And he said, okay, after then he said, well, it should look something like this. And if you know enough about aerodynamics and enough about propulsion and kind of like I mentioned earlier, hey, all jets and mill are probably going to take 5,000 feet, take off 150 knots. You know, they've got a combat radius of about this. Uh, if you have worked with aircraft long enough, you know the rules of thumb. And you've got a starting point. But you start with what the requirements are, and then you go to fulfill them. 
you know, when it comes to the flying qualities, there's a Cooper Harper scale, which is basically a one to 10 scale, one being the best, 10 being the worst, that gives an objective rating for how the aircraft flies. And you want it to be one, two, or three. And if it starts getting past that, then it's saying that there's some deficiency that uh, is in the aircraft that needs more pilot intervention than average. And it gets to the point where you say totally unacceptable, you know, can't mitigate that risk enough, has to be changed. So uh, that's quick and dirty. Did I answer your question okay yeah, for you? Yes, absolutely. Yep, yes, excellent. On the, on the spot, good job. Um, okay, next. Um, I mean, I don't, I don't know if you've got these, but how did you expand upon John Boyd's work on EM theory, and did you ever get a chance to work or speak with him? Uh, I did not get a chance to speak or work with him. <clears throat> I didn't expand on it as much as make that information available to as many people as I could. And it, again, it's one of those things that uh, finds you. And uh, then you find that it's something that you're, you like and you embrace it. Because uh, I found out about Boyd's work back in 83 when I was going through pilot training. And there was a short video on energy maneuverability. And I'm watching that and I go, wow, that is fascinating. And they've got the calculus to show you, you know, how they're determining the, the rate and radius formulas and the G profiles and all these different parts. And I about wore that video out. Mm-hmm. And uh, then going from there uh, and then flying a lot and getting into fights and finding what worked for me. And even though I couldn't describe why I could shoot that guy down, I knew that if I did this, it would work. Mm-hmm. Then I would talk to guys that shot me down and I would say, you know, how did you get from there to there? Because I didn't see that coming or you went into the vertical a lot more than I expected. You know, why did you do that? part of that came from was because I was in a small test bed of uh, guard guys that went directly from uh, pilot training to their major weapon system. Normally there's a six-week program called lead-in fighter school or training where they teach you all the basics about being a fighter pilot and giving you your intro into air combat maneuvering, basic fighter maneuvering, air combat tactics, low-level navigation, weapons delivery, all that stuff. So I went from flying a T-38 right into the A-7. So when I was uh, doing air-to-air in the A-7, you know, they taught me the best they could, and I was, you know, good enough to graduate and things like that uh, and flew the A-7 for a while. But it wasn't until I went on active duty and went to be a lift instructor that I learned the mechanics because not only did I have to teach it in the um, air, I had to teach it on the ground and I had to teach it to the point that old retired fighter pilots who were working as contractors would break us over the coals, the, the new instructors, to make sure we knew the ins and outs about every type of scenario that could come up. So then I started seeing things and going, oh, that's interesting. That's why that would work. Then I took that compared it to what I saw in flying and then i would see some things that didn't make sense and i'd say well he shouldn't be able to operate like that what's it why is he doing that he's pumping i know he's breaking his aoa so he's out of energy he's trying to get his aoa back and i happened to be in kansas Uh, my wife and i were visiting some friends there and i'd mentioned yeah i've got this arrow problem i'm working on 
blah, blah, blah. And uh, my uh, friend said, well, heck, we've got this uh, professor over here who's like a world-renowned aerodynamicist. Maybe should, you should go ask him. I go, really? So I literally picked up the phone, called, talked to his secretary, said, hey, this is Captain So-and-So. I'm in town just for a day. Wanted to see if I could get on a schedule. And uh, he was nice enough to give me a half hour, 45 minutes of his time. We sat down, and uh, he, uh, I told him what I was seeing. And he goes, oh, yes. He said, yeah. He said, a good colleague of mine has been working on that. Uh, he said, that's a very uh, little-known phenomenon. But he said, my colleague is trying to do some work in that area. He said, here, let me show you. And he pulls out some very thick textbooks. And we started going through some formulas and some different things and found out that it was called dynamic overshoot. And that's part of how the EM diagram uh, is derived. So I took that and all that other knowledge that I've been and I decided, well, if this was new to me and I learned a lot, then I bet other people would like it. So I put it together for uh, Fighter Weapons Review, which is the tactical magazine throughout the Air Force at the, at the time for all fighter guys. And the Fighter Weapons School looked at it and said, yeah, we'd love to, to publish this. This has got some really good information in it. So I think it was uh, spring of 91, uh, my article was published on EM diagram analysis. Hmm. It went from that to they then took my diagram that I derived or changed because the ones that we used in the briefing room were in a format that wasn't easy to understand. So I had to recalculate things, uh, go to the base Photoshop, <clears throat> have them do a new layup, and we changed the whole diagram. And then that diagram was used at all the lift bases. So everybody was taught off of that diagram. Now fast forward, I don't know, 20 years or so, I've got a son at the Air Force Academy, and uh, I go to sit in on uh, one of his aero classes during uh, Parents' Day. And uh, I said, well, let me take a look at your book. I want to see what you guys are learning. I go through and I go, hey, <laughs> that's my diagram. That's cool. And uh, found out that they were using it there. So every student learned it and then uh, talked just last year to instructor pilots at uh, uh, UPT bases. They were still using it. And just recently they switched the Air Force with the modified T-38 engines, just within the last year, they switched from using my diagram to a new T-38C uh, diagram. Roger, part of history. So, yeah, you never know, you know, something you do, how it's going to, you know, have an effect like that. But basically, you started off with me wanting to know more knowledge. And, you know, why, is it, why does it work that way? Roger, that's interesting. That's how you found found me. I think you. Uh, I did a video about an EM diagram, you know, a, a crap one because I don't still don't fully understand them. And um, and then Ron uh, Ronbo, uh, you you offered to talk me through them, get together and talk me through them. And then we kind of found out. I found out kind of what you did at that point, and then we set up this interview. But still, at some point, if you ever get the chance, I'd still like to do a video on EM EM diagrams. Um, uh, in what capacity, I don't know. But if you're up for it at some point, um, it'd be really, really useful to have your knowledge on that. And um, yeah, we can we can certainly talk. Uh, anyway, let's blast on. Anyway, uh, right to where do we get to, guys? So uh, this is a bit of a weird question. I'm not sure how relevant it is, but I'll say it anyway. Is there an airplane that you would never fly, 
or fly again due to the risk of crashing. So how do you interpret that? Can you interpret that usefully somehow? Yeah, I've got my answer to that is, in fact, I had to meet with the Senate and our uh, Senate and House Armed Services Committee for the development of the follow on predator, the predator B. I was the test director. So we got a lot into questions on the predator A and the predator B. <clears throat> and in the way and they came to me and they asked me some questions about it. And I had to answer a certain way because I couldn't give an official answer at that time. Mm -hmm. Although they were in town asking me the questions, you still have to have the approved answer, go up the chain and come back down. But to answer that question, I will say for me, the most difficult aircraft to land in other than ideal conditions was the Predator A, the RQ-1 and the MQ-1. So not uh, the, the question was, would I never fly it again or something like that? It's just the most difficult plane I have found to land under very uh, windy, gusty conditions. The flip side of that is I landed that jet one time in Pakistan, and Pakistan is always dirty air. Uh, it's generally not too windy, uh, similar to uh, Korea. There's just always particulate in the air, and you've got to look through it with either radar or IR to, to be able to see through a lot of the stuff. <clears throat> I came back one day, and it was a typical day, very hazy, couldn't see very far, and uh, coming into land, and it was calm, and I could not tell that I touched down. Hmm. Sensor operator and I looked at each other, and we went, hey, I guess we're down. And the only reason we knew it was because we were below flying speed. Mm. So <laughs> if you do it right, you can roll it on and not even have the screen you know, bounce at all. Mm -hmm. Uh, but if it's windy, man, you are you are fighting to get that airplane. I've been in, in times in windy conditions where I've had the uh, throttle all the way back, nose all the way forward, and still going up at uh, two to 3,000 feet per minute. And now you come out the, the other side of that wind shear, and you're just the opposite. Now you're full throttle, full stick back, and you're going down. And now you're trying to get that thing in a landable configuration. So it's I would probably make it akin to the U-2. I know the U-2 can be uh, a handful to land. Yeah, I mean, it took, it took a whole team to land that thing, didn't it? Chase car, pilot. <clears throat> the usual. What, yep. what's, what's, what's with the Predator then? Why is it so hard to land? Is it because of the same, because of its massive amount of lift? or? I think so. I think that that's what it is but partly you're landing it on a screen also mm. you're landing it looking at a like computer screen so you got no field you're not yeah you don't have that depth of field mm -hmm. of looking out in front of you mm -hmm. and being able to say all right i can see all these three-dimensional cues coming into me mm -hmm. it's just two-dimensional mm -hmm. so that makes it a little bit more difficult to to land uh, correctly and i think just because the high aspect ratio wing mm -hmm. it just wants to uh, fly so easily and uh, have the wings flex and go. Mm. Okay, awesome. Right, that wasn't uh, that wasn't the answer I thought you'd give, but that's that's awesome to know that. Um, let's see. Next question: Have you heard of or met any pilots who hadn't been in the military? Is there any civilian route to being a test pilot, i.e., in commercial or private? Uh, 
I don't have that question, but I've got an answer. Sorry, yeah. Uh, there, there's a civilian way of doing it. In fact, I know of only one guy really who's done it, but there's more out there. Um, normally, in that case, uh, you're working for a civilian organization that has enough money to do their program, but maybe doesn't have enough money to hire the uh, the the long course grads and because they're going to cost a lot more and they maybe want to grow their own so that you can have a uh, like an experimental aircraft association type of uh, a build-up a home-built aircraft and somebody working for them who has a lot of experience in the aircraft and they say okay he's the company test pilot mm. well he, he knows that aircraft well uh, because he's been with it and he works with the engineers he's flown the different models but he's not necessarily taught in the theory of how uh, airplanes are built in the flight test sequence and how to, you know, take the Cooper Harper and apply it and looking at the performance diagrams and systems integration and, and being able to say, okay, here's the, the final outcome in a, uh, an objective format that would pass industry standards. So some companies may not have that money to, uh, send somebody to a course, but they will give them the test pilot uh, uh, moniker mm. and say, for us, you're a test pilot. Others will say, uh, yes, we want you to uh, test this stuff, but we also want to send you off to the National Test Pilot School and have you take their course. Now, you can go out to uh, Mojave and, and do that, and it's a year-long course. It's a recognized school, but not everybody's got a a year off from their primary job to go do that. So what some companies will do is they'll let one of their test pilots go for a month at a time. And so, okay, take off for this month and you work it out with NTPS and they go, okay, come out for the stability portion. And then we'll see you six months later uh, when we're doing performance one. And then we'll see you, you know, six months later when we're doing you know, stability three or something like that. So it takes a lot longer if you can't do it all at once, but you can take a civilian guy that's never flown, <clears throat> excuse me, a uh, flight test and grow your own, either inside the company or make it more formal and send them off to the uh, uh, nationally recognized school. My job. Very good. Okay. Um, next question we've got here is, are you able to refuse doing a particular test job because the aircraft looks at first glance too dangerous to fly? Well, that kind of goes back to the story mm. of the, uh, the elevator. Uh, you're the ultimate authority for what happens to the aircraft. So you can say you don't like it and that you're not going to fly it. You just have to be sure that you can objectively state your case mm -hmm. and walk away from it. Um, but nobody should ever put you in that situation because there should be enough checks and balances that says, hey, we realize this is a, uh, a higher risk uh, mission today, but we've mitigated the risk this way, this way, and this way, and our you know backup systems are this and this and this. So uh, if you're comfortable with that, we're comfortable. And if the pilot's not comfortable, then it would be a case of, there might be somebody else more qualified in that area and he would take that flight or he would maybe uh, talk to that pilot about some of the things. Uh, I would say in military flying, 
that never came up in civilian flying civilian flight test it did come up mm-hmm. where i've had to refuse uh i say refuse jets uh, refuse aircraft mm-hmm. i okay. can't go into the reasons why but uh uh yes i've i've refused aircraft on the civilian side in the military uh no okay very good uh, the next question we've um, kind of covered for before, but I'll ask it again anyway, just in case you have a different answer. Uh, how many times have you come close to a fatal accident? If you had accidents or incidents, what was your most memorable one? Um, so we've already answered that really, but is there anything else you'd like to add to that? Uh, training, just the normal day in, day out training as a fighter pilot. Uh, things happen day in, day out things as a test pilot uh, can bite you. Sometimes it's the things that uh, you think you've done everything right, but for some reason uh, the canopy didn't pressurize and you didn't realize it, but you're starting to go hypoxic. Mm-hmm. Well, you're in the middle of a very demanding portion of that and you're starting to go hypoxic. You don't re- recognize your signs soon enough and you lose control of the aircraft. You know, it can be something like that. Uh, I know in uh, flying fighter training um, scenarios, I've almost hit the ground probably four times mm. uh, trying to not get uh, uh, hit by somebody else. You know, somebody engaging me, an air-to-air guy engaging me as an air-to-ground guy, or me pushing my limits saying, uh, okay, can I go faster? Can I go lower? And... Uh, uh, there, there's parts of your training that are uh, very, very demanding. And uh, it, it's also fun flying, but it also uh, lets you know, hey, where's that line? And you go kind of right up to the edge of that line and try not to step over it. Or if you do step over it, you step over just slightly and then come back and mm-hmm. say, okay, that line is still good right there. I don't need to do that again. Mm-hmm. But uh, it, it comes up. Uh, it's something you never look for, but obviously you try to mitigate it whenever you can. Roger. Very good. Okay, the next question. Again, we've kind of briefly covered at the, at the beginning, but how did you get into the testing field? You kind of said it found you, I remember you saying. But... Yeah. Well, it started with my uh, my f- very first jet uh, with the A7. I was lucky enough to uh, be in a squadron that... Uh, had a uh, low-altitude night attack uh, uh, mission set. So I actually started off with a plain vanilla A7 and then switched squadrons at a certain point, excuse me, just to be closer to a family and stuff. And that squadron happened to be a night attack squadron. Well, that night attack squadron had modified aircraft with essentially like a lantern pod but it was the poor man's lantern pod, mm-hmm. and it had a uh, Block 40 F-16 HUD and upfront control. Mm-hmm. And I got into testing there uh, just by the sheer fact that uh, I'm observant. And uh, as I was flying missions uh, with that aircraft, I would see things, and I would write them down, and then I would bring them up to uh the higher ups and i'd say hey i saw this today and you know when i was going through the data sheet i saw this and that and I, this kind of surprised me what do you think about that and that kind of turned into oh yeah that's interesting yeah that's that's a good catch because we had just done a new ofp upgrade operational flight program kind of the guts that tells the airplane how to fly and uh 
that's a catch. Yeah, good, because we're going to let the guys know out at the fighter weapons office, and they're going to make a change to that. So, yeah, good on you for finding that. And then you kind of start getting to know the guys out at the test organization who are doing that work. They tell you what's going on. And then when uh, certain sorties come up, you say, hey, can I come on in that radar test? You know, I want to be the, the backseater on that and run the radar because I know we're doing co-channel uh, interference testing and checking to see if the TFR rate of train following radar has any problems on different channels because you've got main lobes and side lobes and sometimes they can interfere with each other and you've got another aircraft close. So I started getting things there. Then when I went active duty uh, flying the AT-38s, that's where I wrote the EM paper based on what I was seeing uh, out fighting other guys. And then uh, went from that to the F-16, found out some problems with how the inertial system updated the rest of the system or how it did and didn't. And the F-16 has various blocks and they all integrate things slightly different. Again, performance, flying qualities and systems. Uh, so the block 30s I was flying at the time in Korea, uh, I saw an anomaly that shouldn't have been there. And I worked with the local field rep and I told him about it. He said, no, that can't happen. I said, well, yeah, actually it's happened. I've, I've documented it. He said, well, it can't be. I mean, he's a real nice guy. I got to know him very well. He said, he said it, it just can't. He said, that doesn't work that way. So I said, well, how about this? I'll get a jet and uh, I'll show you. So I called the squadron commander and just say, boss, can I get a jet for like 20 minutes? I'm take it outside the shelter, turn 90 degrees, leave it there for five minutes, shut it down, give it back to maintenance. And he goes, yeah, no problem. And I told him. He knows working this INS issue. So I went out, started the jet up, ran through some uh, various uh, INS things, wrote the data down, went out, turned 90 degrees, wrote some data down, shut the jet down, and took that, brought it back to the tech rep, and he goes, interesting. That shouldn't be able to do that. Hmm. So he said, well, let's go back and uh, talk to the engineers. So that got me with one manufacturer working with the inertial system <clears throat> because uh, they use both Litton and Honeywell. So I worked with one manufacturer. Then that got me in touch with the other manufacturer. Then when I started doing foreign military exploitation, I continued that and uh, got to know that system very well. And I, I would do road shows in it the same way that it was a two-part roadshow. I do part of it for giving the, um, the guys in the field before they would deploy a pre-deployment brief on the fighters that they would go against because I was an expert in certain fighters. And I'd give them a brief on that. <clears throat> and then if they were a Block 30 um, a squadron, I would give them the update on the software and how to make the uh, software, how the difference between a gyro update and an accelerometer update, and how that affected either your nav accuracy or your bombing accuracy. So each jet I went to, I kind of found something. And then when I came to the F6 or F117, shortly after I got there, we had a major upgrade going from uh, the standard, uh, we called spin genes, a spinning mass. Uh, gyro from the B-52, which required a 45-minute warm-up period before you went mm, wow. to a uh, six-minute uh, ring laser gyro. 
and then we integrated GPS into that. So uh, that kind of nav system stuff, I kind of got in early and then learned a lot and it just kind of kept following me more and more and even took me into the um, uh, MQ1 and MQ9. And when we were designing MQ9, I was the test director. And I worked with the manufacturer and how we would design having three independent nav systems, how they would talk to each other and how they would vote out the bad actor, mm. but still be able to drive the SATCOM antenna. Because if you voted out the wrong uh, nav system, then you voted out the SATCOM receiver, which forced the aircraft to go lost link, which forced it to come home, rather than put it over to a, a NAV system that's still good and you can still stay in the fight. Mm -hmm. It sounds like a very long answer to a short question. Yeah, it's just, um, <laughs> so so it's not so it's simply not the case that uh, you were just one day suddenly spotted and they said, "Hey, do you want to be a test pilot?" It sounds like it's very uh continual process that took proactivity on your case you had to constantly push to get yourself into projects and stuff like that um yes yeah i would very much say that because like in the 117 community i was uh promoted well ahead of the other guys uh to be sent over to the test squadron mm -hmm. and that ruffled a lot of feathers but the commander knew me and he knew my background and uh, he just said, you know, I'll take care of the, the ruffled feathers. You come over and do a job for me. And it was a, uh, a wonderful tour and enjoyed it uh, every minute of it. Okay, very good. Let's push on. Um, this one may not be relevant, but it is quite interesting. At what point do you consider yourself ready to conduct a <coughs> spin stability and recovery test? Do all military aircraft have to be certified recoverable or even aer aerobatic rated? even the largest transport aircraft. Did you have that question? Quite a big one. Yeah, yeah, I've got that one. That's that's kind of a multi-pronger. I'll try to uh, answer without being too long. Uh, spin stability and recovery test. You do spins when you're in pilot training. Okay. So spins are no big deal. Uh, and uh, You know what starts them. You know what stops them. You know what to recognize while you're in them as to whether they're in the mature phase or the immature phase of uh, wrapping up. And if you're in a inverted spin, you recognize an inverted spin, convert that to a normal spin and do your normal recovery after that. So uh, spin stability and recovery test, uh, I don't think it's that big of a deal unless you're flying an X plane, which means we've never, or I should say a Y plane, we've never done this before. Mm -hmm. Well, X is experimental, Y is research, mm -hmm. but uh, there's a difference between the two. But if if it's never been done, <clears throat> again, you're going to do uh, evolutionary steps up to that point, not revolutionary. You're going to do stuff in mm -hmm. the uh, simulator uh, to replicate it as much as possible, and then you go out and before it spins, you let the aircraft talk to you. And you're telemetry back to a control station, you know, thousands of lines of code for people to be watching airspeed alpha, side slip, you know, everything that needs to be monitored, they're watching it at the same time you're doing it. And you're calling off things uh, as it's happening in the cockpit. And if things start to go bad, you back it off. And as the uh, test progresses, you just fly the card. Your card is 
the test objectives you have for the day and you just basically you know one through whatever it is you, you fly the card do that check it go on to the next mission and uh, do that so uh, i don't know that there's something that says when you consider yourself ready to uh, do spin stability recovery because there's no upside down to a fighter pilot mm-hmm. um so i guess that's not that big of a, a deal i will tell you that in the a7 i think it was the sixth i think your seventh ride was your check ride and your eighth ride was your departure ride and the departure ride was just that your departing controlled flight and that is a wild ride and that's a confidence builder and that's why they put it in early in the in the stream there and basically with that you would uh, go up to about thirty thousand feet i think 250 knots 30 degree bank and then you haul the stick back into your lap and the aircraft would uh, do its best to flat plate and kind of tumble and basically uh, the recovery on that was grab the canopy rails hold on and wait for something that you recognize to happen or recognize and recover from that so uh, you can come out of that any which way upside down sideways spiral spinning whatever and uh, then you just do a recovery and you do a couple of those and you say wow that's a big confidence maneuver and uh, I'd actually had that happen to me in fighting when I was a little bit too aggressive and on the rudder when I was uh, fighting somebody now we get a huge nose slice and that's that's one of the indications of a pre-departure of having the nose do a huge slice and then normally right after that it would tuck under and kind of flip so as soon as it sliced i let off a little bit and then got back into the fight watch out so let me okay. see so uh do all military aircraft have to be certified recoverable or aerobatic rated again it goes back to the requirements whatever the uh the dod or whatever the customer has decided uh, it wants it to be recoverable too uh, whether it's acrobatic or not, you do it to, to that level. I'll say transport category aircraft aren't acro uh, rated. I don't think any of those you're going to be spinning. Mm-hmm. Um, just, just not a reason for that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, very good. Um, let's move on to the next one. The next one's a big question. I hope you've been pre-warned, but we'll see how it goes. Do you ever test structural limits? Bracket maximum G-loading, velocity never exceed, Limited hydraulic controllability, wing stress limit, maximum speed versus maximum versus side slip. Uh, many aircraft designs don't seem to take this into consideration. How far would you push the aircraft? Uh, have I done that? Yes. Uh, and those are the times when you tell yourself, hey, let's make sure we're doing everything just right. Let's settle down, make sure we. We're, we're very clear in how we're going to do this, and I'm on top of the jet and or whatever's going on, uh, recip, depending, you know, whatever you're flying. But, yes, I've done envelope expansion. I've done gross weight increase. I've done the, the dive speed tests. Uh, usually what happens with those, the reason you're doing those is you're testing to find out, the, the again, the flying qualities of the aircraft or handling qualities. The rudder area is the least wetted surface of uh, any aircraft. And if the aircraft ever is going to diverge, it'll diverge in yaw at high 
speed because it's got the least wetted surface area and uh, the aircraft will turn on you. So a lot of times the uh, design dive speed will be predicated on uh, yawing motion and whether it's controllable or not. So you would design and, you know, uh, think VD is 10% over VNE. So you've got VNEs uh, never exceed and VD design dive, I think, is 10% over that. So you'd go above that speed. And then you'd have to do, uh, it's called a pitch doublet or a rudder doublet. Pitch doublet is just a quick wrap. And that uh, sets up a short period, what we call a short period fugoid. And it's a wrap to the control system and you see if it will dampen out or accelerate. So it should get a quick pitch transient and it's going to, like if you push over, it'll go down, come back up and then bump, 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 bump and it's dampened out. Same thing with the rudder. You give a quick hard rudder to the right and it, sh it should start going left, right, right, left. Okay, settling down and within so many uh, cycles, it's dampened. And they'll have requirements for either short period or long period fugoid. Those high speed ones are generally uh, short speed or uh, are short period fugoids. Uh, when you're doing other stability, uh, looking at the flying quality of the overall system, you'll do what's called a feed to beta ratio. And that's just a roll to side slip. And you take the rudders and start wagging them and you get them going uh, at a constant motion to, uh, I'm trying to think if we had to do full deflection or if it's three-quarter deflection. It may change depending on the aircraft. But you get that system set up, and you look out at the wingtip. And for, like, light aircraft, that'd be the easiest, like a straight wing. And you'd look at the wingtip, and you'd say, does it uh, show a circle or does it show an oval as it transcribes through the air? And each one would tell you something different about the the qualities of the that ratio and that ratio combined with other things defined the flying qualities of the aircraft hmm. okay very good very good um this i don't know how you're going to answer this but let us know how you do how much of your input from the tests actually gets taken into consideration for the aircraft designers oh how much of my input I guess so. I mean, I don't know how you answer it because it's a case-by-case -case basis, but however you want to answer that, really. I don't know if you got this question. Um, uh, maybe any anecdotal oh, times. That, was that 27? Uh, 27, yeah. Okay, yeah. How much of your input actually gets taken into consideration? Uh, the most successful test programs are those that have the pilot involved mm -hmm. from the very beginning all the way through until it gets put to bed at the end of its career. The less than successful ones are the ones that try to do it without the air crew or the flight crew and they're doing their things. And there's lots of examples uh, through history of not having the pilot in the loop while something's going on. And then you bring the pilot in to take a look at it. And it's like, oh, no, we don't do it that way. Or no, uh, it can't be done that way. It has to be done this way. And before you do that, you have to do that. And it's like, oh. Oh, I didn't realize that. Okay, darn. So then they end up, it's more money, more time, more expense, uh, all that kind of stuff. Um, I'm just trying to think if I can, what stories I can say. There's, there's some stories that probably, I probably, I could tell you, but I wouldn't be able to tell you on air probably. Okay. That would be, that, that would uh, show this very well. But the answer is 
have the pilots involved early. Because uh, one I'll give you is the uh, the uh, 22. I don't think it was, a, it was either 22 or 23. A friend of mine was working on. Got in the sim to do some tests early on. And uh, the technician said, well, why are you wearing your gloves? And he said, well, I wear my gloves when I fly. And he said, well, the displays aren't going to work if you wear your gloves. He said, well, what do you mean? He said, well, we've got uh, uh, capacitive displays, not resistive displays. So he said, if you've got your glove on, the touchscreen won't work. And he said, well, we all fly with our gloves on. You know, it's a very low percentage that don't fly with gloves. Mm -hmm. Navy doesn't fly with gloves. They'll cut the tips off. Uh, but that's for other reasons for ejecting in the water and being able to get at their uh, Coke fittings on their uh, harnesses and stuff like that. But something just as simple as that, mm -hmm. saying we're putting these displays yeah. together, you know, who's going to touch this display? You know, the the pilot or a, a Rio a Wizzo or something. And uh, how do they do it? From, you know, what angle uh, can they reach it? Uh, and are they covering their hands or not? Mm -hmm. So that was a you know a simple case of somebody just not asking, do they wear gloves when they fly? Mm -hmm. And that would have been picked up by the pilots immediately, obviously. Exactly. At the early, at the yeah. early stages, right? Yes. Yep. Mm -hmm. Okay. Very good. Yep. Um, so I've got twenty-eight. If we can flight test unmanned aircraft remotely, then why are manned aircraft still tested with a human in them? <laughs> Okay, I didn't have that question, oh. uh, so uh, say say it one more time. Uh, yeah, I think we've probably reached the end of what I gave you, and these have been added on in the last couple of okay. days. So uh, we'll try them. If we can flight test unmanned aircraft remotely, then why are manned aircraft still flight tested with human in them? So why don't we test manned aircraft by uh, remotely? I think it flat out is just not the same. Mm -hmm. uh, being able to interpret all the sights and sounds, the feelings. Uh, I don't know if I'd mentioned it earlier, but the, uh, the biggest thing that you have to have or one of the you need as a pilot is what I refer to as a calibrated butt. And that means you can feel vibrations and mm -hmm. define those vibrations. Mm -hmm. And you can tell, is this the onset of a stall? Is it an accelerated stall? Is it a vibration throughout uh, a wing structure or something? And can you assign a Hertz level to that? Mm -hmm. And uh, I actually was flying the 117 one day doing a high-speed run during some test and picked up a vibration and uh, throttled back and then put it back up to that area, got it again, and said, okay, I'm keeping it here. Brought the jet back and just happened to have one of our contractors that uh, builds the jet in visiting the, uh, the, uh, the wing there. And I talked to him and he said, uh, well, that's very interesting. He said, uh, do you have, uh, you know, what can you tell me? And I said, oh, it was about a 10 to 50 onset. It lasted for about this rate did this, bump, 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 and he goes, well, why do you say 10 to 15 hertz? And I said, well, because I know what, you know, one hertz feels like, I know what five hertz feels like. I said, so uh, my estimation was between 10 and 15. And he says, well, it's interesting you bring that up because he said the wing box has a 15 degree, 15 hertz frequency rate. Mm -hmm. So he said, if you are feeling that, he said, that tells us we need to go look at 
and he's told a certain part of the wing. So we have to look at that specific area to find out if there's a problem with that. Because he said that shouldn't, you should not get that vibration. Mm -hmm. So that's part of, you know, having the calibrated butt and mm -hmm. uh, being able to take everything in on a three-dimensional basis. The P51 is a stall ratio, uh, uh, onset rate to stall of between two and seven knots, depending on the configuration. Mm -hmm. So if you're listening to it, you can feel it tell you, I'm getting ready to stall. If you're not listening to it, you'll feel some verbal and stall. Mm -hmm. So I think you can get much more out of having the uh, pilot in the loop, in the aircraft, feeling those things and talking them back uh, as they're happening. Because uh, I'm a, a, a tester that I always try to have my guys and myself say what was happening versus... Uh, switches set because sometimes you'll say okay for this test we're going to be testing this munition and it has to be set up this way so when you get everything's done we're looking for a switches set call at the ground control station once we've got switches set then we know within one minute you should be releasing well you have a malfunction on that run and you say switches set and you say well if you're not if you don't have telemetry for every single box in that aircraft, every switch, I don't know if you missed a switch and the bomb didn't come off correctly. So I think you goofed up a switch. Which one was it? If you, whereas if you had said, okay, level deck, narrow queued, MPT, IRLAs, IRLAs, boom, you say the exact things as you're going through, mm -hmm. then you know, oh, hey, you missed the second IR laser. Mm -hmm. That's why you didn't have seeker head come on. You, you left it in the wrong setting, and you go, oh, son of a gun, there you go. thought I had the switches set. Mm -hmm. be interesting. Once we get into DCS, I'd like your uh, feedback on, um, you're talking about the calibrated button, the uses of it. Um, I have my own kind of slightly different, but in, in DCS we have the jets, and we have to fly them to the extremes, obviously, uh, in to, to fight for your life. The problem is we don't have feedback from the calibrated butt in DCS because it's a video game and we have to play it on a screen. Um, and so I try and, whenever I get a chance, to kind of push that back towards Eagle Dynamics, the guys who make the game, to say, look, we can't feel these necessary vibrations that tell us that, for instance, our engine is doing something or our alpha is at a certain level. So you need to convey that to us via other means, like a very clever sound system or a visually vibrating cockpit or something like that. A lot of the planes are very lacking in that area in DCS. Um, and so I think that needs a bit of work doing on that to compensate for the fact that we don't get the vibrations and the feel, which is what you, I think you're describing there. So be interesting. Yeah, you need it. You need the tactile feedback, so a, a force transducer that would give you a stick shaker in some form or a, a butt vibrator, as it were, to be able to say, all right, I'm starting to feel the pebbles. Now they're going to rocks. Now they're going to boulders. Mm -hmm. uh, something that tells you that. And as an example for how the jet talks to you, I did not fly with earplugs. A lot of my contemporaries mm -hmm. did. Mm-hmm. I didn't fly with earplugs because I wanted to hear what the relative wind was saying. Mm -hmm. And uh, in the F-16, I could tell when the relative wind changed as I was decelerating from above 300 knots through 300 knots. Mm -hmm. And I could hear it 
come from the aft, come over the top of my head and start to go forward. So without looking at anything else, I could be looking over my right shoulder fighting somebody. I know it's time to plug the blower in and get that speed back because I'm uh, going below 300 and I don't want to be slower than 300. Mm -hmm. Or it's time to unload because I'm already at full grunt and I'm still uh, losing speed. So I either have to add some uh, bottom rudder, mm -hmm. put the nose down a little bit more, something. But the bottom line is I heard that relative wind change. Mm -hmm. And the first time I heard, and the reason I did that is because early in my career, I fought F-16s a number of times in the A-7. And when you got the A-7 up towards its top speed, which was just short of supersonic, you reach M-crit. M-crit is uh, the critical Mach number where the first part of the aircraft goes supersonic. Normally going to be about quarter cord, and it's going to shift aft. You'll get a center pressure shift. You'll get a slight nose tuck as it shifts aft. The nose will tuck uh, for relaxed static stability aircraft, which the F-16 is. Uh, it'll counteract it on its own. You won't even feel it. It'll glide right through Mach. But with the A-7 being much more of an analog jet, you could feel that. You could see a little bit of shift in the uh, the airspeed indicator, just a, a, a tip of it, but I'd hear the relative wind change. Mm. And when you got that full canopy supersonic, it would be a roar going up to it, but then as you passed through that at the mm. top speed, it got quiet. And the mm. first time it did it, it scared me so much I thought I'd lost the engine. Mm -hmm. And, but then as I re-G'd uh, the, the jet, I was doing a specific maneuver. And as I pulled back, now the G's came in, the speed came down. And I was like, Ooh, here comes relative wind again. I go, oh. So then I made a mental note of that. And then I flew that same maneuver like two or three more times during engagements. And I noted the exact conditions it came under. And it's, yeah, 645 knots true at this altitude with this angle and, and this and that. And it's just the, the M crit because it's going to generally happen over the top of the canopy or a portion of the wing. Usually you'll see a spike on the canopy. Mm -hmm. If you look at the, the side views of uh, uh, mock indications or mock trail. I find it really interesting what you're talking about. You're talking about uh, taking out your earplugs and using your ears, your set, your, you know, you're using the limits uh, or your sensitivity of your hearing, one of your senses, to almost connect to the machine. You almost plug in into the machine, aren't you, uh, to help you understand what the machine is doing. I listen to it talk to me absolutely as much as I can. Every airplane will talk to you if you listen to it. So I figure, you know, it wants to talk, I want to hear. So whatever it wants to say, I'm going to mm. do it. So you you pick up those cues a lot quicker mm -hmm. then. So those engine vibrations, these other things that come up, you can all of a sudden you go, oh, wait a second. I'm hearing something and feeling something by my right leg. Oh, we've got a right engine problem. Look at that. Oh, yeah, there's a temp going up. Oh, I got an ECS failure. Mm -hmm. Oh, I got a duct problem. All right, let me pull that back. Am I getting smoke in the cockpit? What's happening? Let me dump this. And so... Uh, I wanted the airplane to be able to talk as much as possible, and I strived to listen to it as much as possible. Mm -hmm. It's interesting. I mean, it's a completely different scope, obviously. You're talking about fighter jets and experimental stealth planes and stuff. But uh, I, I just found it interesting because I, um, I used to run just a very small company, and I used to tune sports car engines up. And um, every one I did was different because they were modified. 
um, and so I'd take them out on the road, get the guy to drive it, and I would um, I would uh, literally plug headphones and put a tube through the dash into the engine, connected to different places of the engines, like a stethoscope, and listen. And um, as I was manipulating the engine code on my laptop, and um, a bit like what you were saying there, you're kind of connecting your, your hearing to allow the plane to tell you what it's doing, when it's happy, when it's not happy. And I would do the same. I could, And after five years, I could tell when an engine was happy, when it wasn't happy, when it was doing something, when it wasn't doing something, just by hear, listening to it, not even looking at the computer anymore. And, um, sure, I absolutely. Found, I just found it really interesting about, I don't know, about... And it goes back to the very beginning of the irreplaceability of the... When it comes to testing and, you know testing and stuff like this irreplaceability of a human brain with its senses in the machine um and how useful that is with the right kind of sensitive sensitivity sensitivity of human there mm. yeah I'll, I'll say the the 117 was a little unique that uh it in certain circumstances uh would not talk to you well from the standpoint i could be at its slowest speed or its highest speed, and it would feel the same, mm -hmm. assuming I wasn't stalling. And I, if I got an airspeed warning, I'd have to look and say, well, is the airspeed fast or is the airspeed slow? Because the visual cues in that aircraft, because that big canopy coming down is, a, I think, a six or 800-pound canopy coming down, mm -hmm. and the limited views that you had through that and stuff, um, we had a, a PARS on it, a pilot-activated recovery system. That helped you that if you got into a, a disorienting situation where you couldn't tell, you know, up from down, it's at night, you know, we flew at night so much. And if you got into mm -hmm. a bad situation, you could hit the paddle switch on the uh, uh, stick and it would recover for you. But that's mm -hmm. a case where uh, in certain circumstances, it will talk to you. You can feel some of those vibrations, but other times you can be uh, have a super wide range of speed and not be able to tell the difference because mm -hmm. in that case, the canopy uh, sucked up so much of the rel relative wind changes. Mm -hmm. And through the design, you didn't hear it that much. Oh, but I still didn't, uh, still didn't fly with your plugs with that airplane. Okay, well, let's push on then. Um, I don't think you've got these questions, but there's two questions that have come up next, and they say they're talking about something called fly-by-voice. Fly-by-voice. I've never heard of that before. Is that <laughs> something you're aware of? Yeah, I did that with NASA. Oh, can you... Talk us about it because I, I've never heard about it, so I'm completely ignorant about this. Yeah, I, actually, I've flown uh, a few different uh, uh, systems via that. Uh, uh, NASA F out of uh, one of their East Coast, I'm trying to think if it's Langley or whatever, which branch, but uh, one of their East Coast branches had an OV-10 modified for fly-by-voice. And they were looking for some pilots to fly it and give them feedback. So... Uh, they weren't going to check me out or anything like that, so they'd have a pilot. Uh, I can't remember. I think he was in the back, and I was flying up front. And then we go up and we give it various commands. So you had admin commands like raise gear, lower gear, mm -hmm. turn left 15 degrees, you know, climb to this altitude. There was a, a litany of words that they wanted you to use to input into their database of words and have a number of different people speak that so that you'd have what is now your modern-day speech-to-text equivalent mm -hmm. so that the aircraft would know, climb to 5,000 feet. Okay, it's climbing to 5,000 feet and it's going to level off or whatever else you want to do. Mm -hmm. 
that was in the aircraft itself. I did stuff with the research labs, uh, AFRL, Air Force Research Lab at Wright Pat, where we did a lot of helmet-mounted cueing displays. Again, uh, being in the right place at the right time, uh, I got to be involved with so many different experiments in stuff that was uh, groundbreaking. And I was doing helmet-mounted cueing systems back in 93. Mm. And we used those to an advanced uh, concept to where we could have them find the, uh, let's say I'm getting intercepted by a you know, Su-27. I'd get a locator line coming out of the HUD to the Su-27. It identified as a Su-27. And then I could, by voice, say, employ AMRAM. Mm-hmm. I, or I could say left AMRAM, you know, uh, employ whatever words we were using at the time. But I could basically say, shoot. Mm-hmm. And I didn't have to take my hands off the stick throttle. I didn't have to do anything else because there's enough things that we were doing with the HOTAS. Like the F-16, I think, has got, the last I remember, like 36 mm-hmm. different functions mm-hmm. with the stick and throttle. So what we were trying to do with the voice command was allow us to see something. It would tell us, hey, here's a uh, an aircraft, and it might even say, lock, lock. And I go, okay, great, shoot. Because uh, like F-16 in a vertical scan mode, you can be in a dogfight and have somebody, you know, way in, uh, above you uh, in a 10 by 60, and the aircraft uh, radar will lock onto them. You're not even seeing them yet, but you go, great, lock on, we're pit bull, hammer down, gone, it's off the rail, and I don't have to worry about that guy. Oh, Assuming I don't have a friendly next to him or something. Mm-hmm. But the fly-by-voice allowed you to get a lot more things done without having to flip switches because the same thing by being able to say chaff flare mm-hmm. you, they give you a ground threat you get a locator line you did identify it as a certain threat and well, okay for that threat i need uh, uh chaff for this type i need flare so i'd tell which one i want or if i needed combo mm-hmm. so I, yeah i did a, a fair amount of fly-by-voice work uh, did you ever have problems with it because we, I mean, we have the same thing obviously computers are quite you know have, have come a long way since then and it's pretty much standard standard thing we have we can have fly by voice in our in our game but i've always had problems with understanding people's accents and stuff like that i mean back in the 90s how on earth did you get that to work again we're talking research lab dollars big computers and uh, we didn't always get the the end results of the test because i'm there for three mm-hmm. years uh, doing another job. I'm exploiting uh, foreign I- fighters. So I've already got a full-time job. When I'm not doing that, I'm over flying these gee whiz uh, science projects at the uh, the research lab. So I would come in, fly certain missions, and then uh, go on to the next thing. And it's kind of like what, what people who've interviewed Chuck Yeager say. So, you know, what was it like you know, breaking the sound barrier? And he said, hey, it was just another mission. Mm-hmm. You know, there's just another thing to do and then on to the next thing. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the things that in flight test, uh, I totally agree with. You're doing so many different things with different aircraft, different days of the week, different parts of flight test programs, some at the beginning, some at the end. Someone asks you a question about something specific and you say, do you have the data card in that? You know, do you have my, my, my lineup sheet? Let me take a look at my card and I'll... I'll look at my card, review the notes, and then I'll tell you what I think about that. But I can't remember because that was 11 tests ago. 
Mm. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay, um, very quick one. Uh, have you ever had a blackout, presumably from, from high positive glucose? Uh, the answer to that is no. Roger. You know, the closest I ever came to that was, believe it or not, in a T33. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was enlisted. It was uh, 1979, 80, let me see, 70, 78 or 79, and I'm flying with the guard. I'm an enlisted troop waiting to get a pilot slot to go uh, fly the fighters. And uh, they said, hey, uh, they're giving rides in the T-33 a month or so. So put your name on a list if you want to go. And everybody knew I wanted to fly. So uh, my name was on the list and the day came and I got to go fly. We shot an instrument approach at a couple different bases. And then we did some acro. And I'm sure he told me, hey, you might uh, lose some of your vision and stuff, but I don't know how much we talked about the anti-G straining maneuver, but we did uh, a few loops. And when we were in the high G portion of the loop, I grayed out from the standpoint that I could see my peripheral uh, come in from 360 down to just a tiny little Mm -hmm. spot in front of me where I could see just like one or two instruments. Mm -hmm. And as he let off the G, then everything came back Mm -hmm. Uh, past that. uh, No, never came close to blacking up. My resting uh, G tolerance was six G's, mm-hmm. and and guys will say, "Well, that's that's so high that's kind of unbelievable." But mm-hmm. uh, the way I got my my nickname Rambo was because that was back when Rambo mm-hmm. was uh, was high, and I was mm-hmm. working out, lifting weights a lot, so I was fit. And when I did my centrifuge testing. Uh, I didn't know this, but the uh, centrifuge operators had money bet on me, <laughs> and uh, th- they started spinning me, and I got up to 5.8 G, and I'm going, I feel like I should be doing something. So, uh, okay, so I started to grunt, and uh, I heard from the control room, oh, and I, I, that's interesting, what happened with that? And he said, you just cost me money. <laughs> so we finished the thing, got a few 9 Gs, you do all your stuff. And he said, I bet that you were going to be at least six Gs. And he said, when he started grunting the 5.8, he said, I lost five bucks. Mm -hmm. And I said, sorry. I said, I just kind of felt like I should be doing something Mm -hmm. because I felt bad that Mm -hmm. you're spinning me and nothing's happening. So for me, I had a very high G tolerance, you know, 5.8, kind of guy, short, squatty, Mm -hmm. uh, uh, weightlifter. So uh, the Gs were uh, relatively easy for me. One of the techniques we had in the F-16, like if you had to pull a, a 9G turn, and that's like a 9, 9.4G aircraft, depending. Uh, if I was going to do like a, a bat turn to the right, I would look that way, and I would put my helmet between the canopy and the, the small pitot tube on the seat itself. I'd set it between the two, and that would kind of cradle my uh, helmet. And then I'd rack on the G, and I'd get this mm, this hard 9G turn, and then I'd let off, and then I'd be back into fighting, and it didn't hurt my neck a bit because it just kind of cradled it in that one spot. But try to keep your head in the normal position, do 9Gs. You can do it. It just uh, it hurts. Roger. I bet a lot, a lot of people were envious of your uh, G tolerance. So many people struggle with it. <laughs> yeah, and like I say, it's the uh, dumb luck for my uh, physiology. 
Roger. Yeah, no, it's fair, fair enough. Um, uh, uh, D, you still online? Did you want to answer the next question? Ask, yep. ask the next question. Send. Okay, so I know that different aircraft missions you want to have different uh, flight characteristics, but I don't know very many people that's had the chance to actually fly fighters, bombers, and uh, attack aircraft. I was wondering how you how you could discuss like how the different aircraft like maybe felt or flew. Uh, again, they're all the same, and they're all slightly different. Uh, so, um, and again, I was very aggressive in flying anything I could, anywhere, anytime, because I just want that to be in my clue bag of uh, flying. So, like the A-37, I got to fly that with a guard unit that happened to be going to the bombing range that I ran. And I asked him, hey, can I take a hop in one of your jets? To see what it's like because i direct you guys onto the range all the time so they said sure so i came over and flew that and i can tell you one of the unique things about the a37 is when you shoot the gun you can absolutely smell it in the cockpit hmm. very very distinct with that and t37 a37 uh, very similar aircraft can't remember what if they did something different with the uh the engines in there but uh very similar flying qualities ov10 uh you can call it the Oscar Vomit if you've flown it. If you haven't flown it, you have to call it the OV. But uh, because I've flown I can call it the Oscar Vomit. Anybody who's flown it will tell you uh, uh, the, the reason they joke about it is that um, now you know what it feels like to give birth <laughs> if you've flown the Oscar Vomit because of the way that you have to sit with your legs spread apart to get to those rudder pedals. It is the widest a cockpit I've ever flown in where you, uh, when when your feet go down into the, uh, not the rudder chambers as it were, but just the, sitting in that, it's a kind of a very weird, you know, uh, compromising as it were, uh, sitting arrangement. So, uh, and then like the B-17, a good friend of mine was a captain on that, flying it for a museum. He told me he was going to be at an air show. It was close enough that I could get to take some leave. I went over there, uh, met the other air crew, hung out with the other pilots, and then uh, they said, uh, "Well, you know, come on out tomorrow morning, and you'll know, help us pull the blades through and things like that." Did that, and they said, oh, "Well, you're going flying, so you know, hop up with us." And uh, we took off, and uh, within like eight, ten minutes, it, he hops out of the left seat. I hop into the left seat, and there I am flying a B-17. Very. Uh, nice flying qualities 110 knots in the climb out 116 crews very very comfortable flying aircraft mm -hmm. um so uh yeah they're all the same they're all a little bit different uh landing the t6 the back seat of the t6 is the same uh sight picture as the f4u corsair so if you're going to fly the corsair they have you fly back seat and the texan and get comfortable uh with that and I will tell you, landing the Texan, when you do it just right, is like landing on a baby's butt. Mm -hmm. You just touch down, the wheels roll, the oleos compress, and it's like landing on a pillow. And I remember uh, after my checkout, in uh, the last landing, I think, was like that. And I went, oh, my goodness. I said, I've never felt uh, an airplane land like that. And the uh, the front seater said, and that is the T six landing. 
and that's why guys like it so much. So, um, was there a question about any specific airplane? I was just thinking in general between like maybe attackers or fighters, but it seems like you kind of answered that. Yeah, the uh, like the A7, that's a low piece of S, which means, you know, uh, specific power. It doesn't have a high thrust to weight ratio. It's got high wing loading, which makes it a perfect attack aircraft. So it can fly low level, fly fast, and it's the Cadillac. And the bombing system on that was incredible. It was as good or better than the F-16, and the gun system as good or better than the F-16. I was a much better shooter with the A-7 with the cannon than I was in the F-16 because F-16 is lightly loaded. You move that around just a tiny bit, mm -hmm. and that pipper can change a lot. Mm -hmm. Where with the A7, with the highly loaded wing, it was much more stable coming down the chute and uh, just incredible. Mm -hmm. uh, unique thing about the F16 refueling, because I know a lot of guys have trouble refueling. Mm -hmm. uh, the If you feel your arm between your wrist and your elbow and you squeeze your fist together, you will feel that little tendon kind of pop out. Mm -hmm. That is the amount of range that you need for flying the F-16 when you're on the boom. Mm -hmm. All you have to do is squeeze the stick slightly, and that will raise or lower you, depending on what you're doing. Because it's so sensitive mm -hmm. in there. Now, again, you've got takeoff and landing gain versus cruise gains. When you're on the tanker, you're in takeoff and landing gains. Stick around a little bit more, it won't be as sensitive. Mm -hmm. But uh, that's one of the ways that uh, you can check yourself for over-controlling is just squeeze the stick and let go, and you can see how much you can change the uh, the up and down as you're on the boom. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Okay. Right, so we'll come to our uh, the last official question. Do you see question 34? About which test pilot school? Yeah, so we've, we've answered a lot of this, but uh, please answer what you want from that. Yeah, so I would say, you know, I uh, graduated uh, various courses from the National Test Pilot School, and uh, I had, gosh, 20, maybe more courses that the Air Force sent me through that were uh, military courses or contractor courses on, uh, like I mentioned earlier, uh, design, uh, stealth, systems integration, electro-opticals, IR systems, just a ton of things. So uh, my formal flight test education <clears throat> came from uh, NTPS and flying missions in uh, both the military and civilian for the roles that I was assigned along with those short courses and just a variety of subjects in there. So I'm not a long course grad and uh, you know my hat's off to those guys. We refer to them as the golden arms and those are some of the names I'd given you earlier. Mm -hmm. uh, those guys are the the real deal. They know you know the stuff in and out and my hat's off to them uh, because uh, they've taught me a lot and I've learned from them. But I've been able to have my uh, foot on both sides of the fence, been able to do some developmental and some operational. And they're entirely different because the developmental side, you're just sure it meets the design requirements to the specification. On the uh, operational side, you're saying, uh, can I do that in a wartime situation? And they are different because uh, if you say the radar has to do a certain thing or perform to a certain level, that's one thing. But when you start fighting with it and you say, but it breaks lock after 
this part or if the guy notches beams and he does this or he does that and that when i hit offset aim point it uh, jitters and it does this or that uh, they all have their their place where they're needed for uh, getting the aircraft ready for the operational community and then making sure that when it's in the operational community that it's working as designed to a level that the average pilot could fly to because that's another thing the average guy isn't going to be a test pilot so you can't expect him to necessarily fly to the same level mm -hmm. that you are so you have to say hey if i'm average joe can i land this just like that uh, situation i had uh, where uh, i could barely land that aircraft that had the mm -hmm. tail malfunction i told them i said uh, this would have been a write-off i said uh, not saying like i'm trying to toot my horn but this was an unlandable aircraft until i could come up with a way to land it today and we were lucky enough that the wind cooperated with the runways with the gusts with how i was able to manipulate it because if this would have happened to joe bag donuts pilot he would have crashed it mm -hmm. so yeah, keep this around but put the big red x through it mm -hmm. so um i think it says uh, how challenging would you say the curriculum was um there's always going to be a, a flying qualities portion and an academic portion, and they uh, they make you work for it. There's there's no freebies at um, any test pilot school. You are going to work hard for anything that you do, and you're going to learn an awful lot. So no matter what you thought you knew before you got there, you're going to learn more. More job. Excellent. Okay, that's the end of the official questions. We'll just take a couple of ancillaries from the stream, just because guys have been waiting a long time to answer some questions. From Mitch, question, oh, bloody. Uh, from your point of view, how common is it that a pilot is a bit of a maverick or is it always by the book flying? So I guess we're talking about non-test military pilots. Uh, I will say that no organization tolerates Maverick anybody's. So uh, a fighter squadron will not tolerate a Maverick uh, pilot within their organization. Uh, I've flown in uh, r regular fighter squadrons with some of the, the absolute most professional fighter pilots that, that we've ever produced. And I've flown uh, with some that aren't so good but are still extremely good pilots. Uh, I have flown with developmental pilots that are just amazing guys, uh, lots of good knowledge. Uh, I've not found a bad uh, long course grad guy that I've ever flown with. Uh, some of the OT guys, uh, at times, you know, things come up, but uh, uh, Mavericks are not, uh, they're not encouraged, they're not allowed because we're professional and we take our job seriously. And that's not a an ad for the Air Force or anything, but that is just the way fighter aviation is. We, we hold ourselves to extremely high standards, and uh, essentially you're going to plan, execute, debrief. Uh, you're going to plan the mission, whether you know test or non-test mission. You plan it, you're going to execute that as it was planned, flex as needed during that, and you will come back and you will debrief that in as bloody of detail as you need to to make sure that all points are brought out that are salient for things that we can learn from 
and things that we want to say we don't want to do again. Roger. So the, the, the Maverick Tom Cruise in Top Gun, that's just a myth then. That doesn't yes. exist in real life. He would be kicked out and he'll be shipping rubber dog shit or whatever the saying is. Yeah, absolutely would not be tolerated. Yeah, well, that's good to know. Good to know. Okay, uh, yeah, one I'm... more. Sorry, go ahead. I can recall hearing a story that someone was like screwing around with a with a ground crew chief once with the Air Force, and oh, he he was not feeling pretty good for a bit after that. He learned, uh, I think it was one of the guys we interviewed first or something. It's like that shows just how little tolerance they have for that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you gotta look after you. I guess I'm not, I'm not familiar with the story. Mm. I can't remember the story. I, I can't remember exactly, so I, I won't say, but. Uh, basically, the, the the whole idea was that the pilot can't just uh, walk over the uh, the ground crew that look after him. They have to the pilot has to respect the ground crew. Um, he can't oh. just you know nearly run them over and, and get away with it. Oh, absolutely! You you have to remember, uh, and I used to brief this a lot to uh, the the new pilots that you know, they're newly minted Air Force pilots. We're teaching them to be fighter pilots, and I would. Uh, make sure they knew right from the beginning make no bones about it the army wins the war we are a support function we help them do their job they are the boots on the ground that win the war for everybody else we just happen to be the ones that uh look uh like we've got a cool job and uh, <laughs> stuff but mm -hmm. uh they're the guys who win the wars and the people at finance if you don't get paid Hey, things aren't you know going well and if you can't buy the stuff that you need at the commissary you know everybody is part of the chain and it's really not meant as a uh, a suck up comment at all but everybody is an important part of the chain we all work together and that's one of the reasons that uh, uh, I think most of the pilots I knew really respected uh, the crew chiefs and everybody else because we said if you didn't do your job, we couldn't do ours. Mm -hmm. And we, we love doing the job that we do. Mm -hmm. Roger. Okay, uh, from Artie. Um, when, testing, uh, when testing, is the test pilot looking purely at the aircraft and how it responds behaved? Or is the brief wider to look at the human factors involved in flying that plane? E.g., the factors of avionics versus human... You know what? I'm going to have to copy this to you in a text, I think, because it's quite a long one, and it's going to be hard for me to articulate. So I'm going to send it to you in our chat room. If you, if you can see our chat room, it's going to be on your phone. But did you get that? Yeah, I'm looking uh, online at, uh, on the stream, at Twitch there, and I can see... Oh. Yeah, I can see some of the stuff that you've got bringing up on Discord. Yeah. Yep. yep. Either way, you can see that question there, beginning when testing is... Okay, I'll compare like your out response behaves. Um, you bring up the 737 Max. That is a little bit of a uh, a political um, issue. Politics. Whenever money's involved, things change. So uh, that's why you will find on the civilian side, perhaps a tendency at times to push harder to say. We've got to get this done because we have to generate a profit. So, you know, fly that extra sortie. Whereas in the military, we can say, hey, if we're not quite ready, uh, we'll push it another day. Um, but uh, we're not in that big of a hurry to uh, 
have a high risk mission go off that hasn't been fully vetted. So uh, the thing you have to realize is that there's uh, human factors and human performance engineering. And all of that goes into a lot of the design before you even get to it. There's a whole book on, um, trying to think of the exact title of it, uh, Air Crew Workstation Geometry, something like that. Mm -hmm. And that is a whole thing that says the average height is from this to this, the average weight is from this to this. As that pilot sits in the seat, uh, the angle from uh, the left hand forward has to be no more of a than this and behind no more than that and so they define a lot of that uh, before you get to it and then you just say you know how is this and, you know, does it work well can we do it better and and that's one of the things in the the predator that uh it was designed much more by engineers on the display because it was all keyboard commands and very little stick uh stick and throttle stuff i mean there was obviously stick and throttle but I think it was keyboard driven because of the engineer side where pilots are want to be much more of a flip a switch, throw a switch, you know, push some button rather than use a keyboard stroke to uh, get something done. Oh, I guess it brings up a, a point. <sighs> Flying lots of airplanes gives you a, a good opportunity to look at the design of other aircraft. So I can tell you, having been in the, uh, wasn't in the 14, uh, but I worked closely with 14, 15, 16, 18 on uh, one test. And I can tell you, there's a huge difference in how we display the targets from one aircraft manufacturer to another and the size of the display. And like on a F-15, the scope, I believe, is 40% larger than the scope on an F-16. So that's a lot more real estate and mm -hmm. some of the stuff that they display on theirs, I'd like to see on that. So the uh, the end result is I would take this from the Tomcat, this from the Hornet, this from the Viper, this from the Eagle, and I'd combine it into this. And that's where when I was working on the advanced cockpit team with one of the uh, contractors, uh, we were looking to say, we're not designing this for the person who's flying it today because this jet doesn't exist it's not going to exist for some time now so we have to say what do our kids use to manipulate their electronic devices and would it be more beneficial to change this stick to more of a controller game boy controller style so mm. there's a whole lot of things that we looked at on doing those things and one of the ways you test the effectiveness of it is you put somebody in the cockpit and you say, I want you to do A, B, or C, and you see how well they can do it. How intuitive is it to be able to find that menu or submenu, drop a bomb, find an aircraft, run the radio, run the whatever it is, and then you go back and you have iterations of that design and redesign. When you've been in a MIG, you've been in a MIG. When you've been in a Sukhoi, you've been in a Sukhoi. They... Uh, those two manufacturers are almost building carbon copies of their jets when they build the next one. Mm -hmm. And even the color schemes in the, yeah. the cockpits remain the same. And I'll tell you, like on the flanker, I liked the way the switches were pretty much forward of the hip. Mm -hmm. I liked that a lot. And the way 
they displayed certain things. Uh, it was easier to interpret than some of the things that we did. Some things in the Mirage 2000. Uh, I liked the way they did compared to the way U.S. aircraft did them. But uh, human factors are involved in every design. It's just a matter of to what level and who's flying it. And it can be a, a factor of the background of the pilot who's flying it. Because if you're looking strictly at, uh, let's say, fighter guys and you're building the transport, they may have a different mindset on how things work versus if you brought in a heavy guy, a 141 guy, may design that entirely differently. But that's the way, you know, it makes sense to them. No, uh, so the 737 MAX stuff, I can't really uh, talk to that. I know uh, some of the stuff that's going on with that, but I can't talk with any authority on that subject. Roger. Excellent. Okay, guys, I'm aware that there's other people asking questions, but unfortunately I've run out of time and I'm going to get in real trouble if I go any longer. Um, so just to summarize, um, absolutely fascinating. I hope lots of people will come and watch this because there's a lot of really interesting stuff there. Thank you for giving up your time, Rombo, and I hope to so get you set up in DCS and hopefully you'll start coming flying with this, uh, which will be great. Uh, maybe we'll even make some more videos and that will be fantastic. And... Oh, God, that's going to be the hospital. Um, that is That was just really good. Um, absolute okay. pleasure having you. Um, and um, I th we'll be staying in contact, and we'll, we'll see you in the future. Sounds good. Enjoyed it. Thanks. Thanks, Thanks everyone. Talk I'll, soon. I'll see everyone later. Bye.